Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. And of course, we have the do-rag right-winger. Do-rag <laughs> conservative. Do-rag conservative. I, I was trying to think. I was like, do-rag, do what rag is it? Atomic MAGA. Atomic MAGA. We have Malik Abdul continuing to join us. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And it doesn't seem like we're any in a different position than we were on yesterday. Pretty much. Pretty much. Same we're thing. Just Still waiting on races. It's like, how, how, how are we waiting on races? <laughs> like, the election was on Tuesday. And because we don't even we know who it, 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 control it, of Congress. Neither one. Right. So we can understand the Senate. We don't even know who has control of Congress. That is, the, that's deplorable. It's unfathomable. I'm going to take Hillary Clinton's word. That's deplorable. No, it is. It is, and it's no excuse. And a lot of this is out west. So California, hey, there's hey, still hey. races. California, <laughs> you know Arizona is still crazy. We're still trying to figure out what's going on in Arizona. But it's so sad that we're two days after the election. And we don't know who has control of Congress. Man, that's aggravating. Donald Trump, I was reading into some of the races that Donald Trump basically has picked and everything else. The non-competitive races, he got it. Yeah. The competitive races, not so much. Right. And that's where the weakness was being shown. Mm-hmm. The non-competitive, meaning the most competitive races are the ones that Trump took, he took the hit on. And apparently Fox News was complaining. Social media was complaining. Everybody was yelling at Trump. I'm going to do my monologue on that yeah. today because despite the fact that all of these people are still complaining at Trump, I still think Donald Trump is still the heavyweight in regards I to guess. winning the next race. And I think he has a straight path. He I mean, is. look, I think Trump's best aspect is Trump. I think his worst aspect is also Trump. Both of those things are problematic for Donald Trump. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I, I, but I, I was fascinated by that because all things being equal, they were like, oh, how dare Donald Trump shaking their fists at him and everything else. But it's like, He's still the big papa in your party. They was like, oh, we shouldn't have a party of cult. Look, you're stuck with it, right? I mean, Trump, it is what it is. And Donald Trump is what Donald Trump is. And big papa is going to announce his race. I mean, there were even people saying Trump should hold off on announcing his race until December. Basically, when Warnock and um, Herschel Walker basically have their runoff. Like, I personally think he should wait. There's no benefit to doing it. I think he should wait until the new year. Trump's problem is, is that he literally endorsed over a hundred people. <laughs> oh, jeez. Is that many? Yeah, he literally endorsed over a hundred people. And at this point, he may have lost about maybe 15 of those. Yep. So his numbers are good. But everybody was saying at the time, no one does this. No one endorses that many people. And so that's his problem. But you're putting too much power on the table. Many people. Yeah. And no one does that. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, I thought Big that Papa. was just me, that I thought, is he just throwing his name everywhere? I yes. think, I think That's what, what he, he did. What he did was he used their campaign yes. rallies for, for his, his for rallies. His, for his, for his, <laughs> right, right, yes. right. For his own. He's yeah. like, I'm not having to pay for it. Screw it. Yeah. Let me just go go to. I'm back this guy. Let me, I'm going to go back you. I'm going to go talk at your rally. Okay? Oh, also, they were saying behind the scenes he was very angry. Like at Sean Hannity saying, Sean Hannity gave me bad advice. <laughs> he blamed his wife. It's like, how you blaming your, how you blaming your wife? Own it, bro. Melania wants no part of it. Right. Get me out of this. Right. 
Well, should we go to yes. some yeah, headlines? Let, let I'll start it off. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Of course, the main story of the day is the Senate race. Just some updates on the elections that we had a full two days ago. And we still don't know the outcome at this point. The Senate race, Republicans have 49 seats and Democrats hold 48. The House of Representatives, 209 seats for Republicans, nine more needed, and Democrats hold 191 seats. This is an update as of this morning. Note, Republicans did flip at this point, I think about 10 seats and Democrats flipped about four. We'll be heading into a runoff in Georgia, December 6th, maybe, between Herschel Walker and, gee, Herschel Walker and Warnock (laughs) and Reverend Warnock. In domestic news, the red wave pundits predicted What happened in the U.S. didn't happen. President Joe Biden underscored this during a Wednesday address on the incoming results of the highly anticipated midterm elections. Biden saying, while the Preston pundits are predicting a giant red wave, it didn't happen. Biden told reporters adding that the events marked a good day for democracy. Good day for democracy and a good day for America. Biden continued, our democracy has been tested in recent years, but the American people have spoken and proven democracy is who we are. Now, let's be clear about what's happening here. Joe Biden is saying in every sense of the word, if we if there were a red wave, democracy would be in peril only because Democrats did not do did not do as poorly as we thought democracy was saved. So I want you to understand what 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 that means. Democrats are the saviors of democracy. Democrats are the saviors <laughs> of that. democracy. And when asked, I watched the press conference on yesterday, and when asked, would Joe Biden do anything differently? Joe Biden said, no. So there you have it, folks. The Biden administration is planning to release on Wednesday a transcript of a 2004 interview that former U.S. President George W. Bush and former Vice President Dick Cheney gave to a bipartisan government commission investigating the 9-11 terrorist attack. U.S. media has reported the interview with the commission took place in April 2004 in the Oval Office and included a discussion of intelligence warnings received prior to the attacks. The Wall Street Journal reported citing a copy of the document and a person familiar with the matter. During the interview, Bush acknowledged that Air Force One had poor communication when he was on the plane after the attacks folded and asserted that he authorized Cheney to shoot down unresponsive commercial airliners. This is according to the report. Now, of course, there was a lot of discussion during that time or rumors, if you will, that that's exactly what the government was planning to do shoot down a commercial airliner. I'll probably think about that a bit to see how I actually feel about that. I don't know what was the answer when you had planes flying in the air that may crash into something. Buildings, yeah. I mean, it, the fog of war, um, it was one of those things. So I'll have to think on how I actually feel about that. But I'm not exactly sure that this interview will be as enlightening as we thought because it may just confirm what we kind of already knew. U.S. President Joe Biden noted during a Wednesday address on the midterm election results that billionaire Elon Musk needed to be 
looked at. When asked whether the entrepreneur was a threat to U.S. national security, this was during the press briefing on yesterday, he was asked a question by Jenny Leonard of Bloomberg, and she said, which I thought was a very, well, I'll give you the question. Do you think Elon Musk is a threat to national security? That's what the question, that was a question that a reporter, a real journalist, asked the president of the United States, do you think the billionaire owner of a company that does business in the United States, is he a threat to U.S. national security? This is media psyops. Elon Musk is giving his um, satellite thing to Ukraine to basically use in the war effort. They're concerned. My SpaceX. Yes. Their (laughs) issue is Twitter. That's their issue. And they're, I mean, but it hits across at how like valuable Twitter is for U.S. interests in regards to like shaping a narrative. Mm-hmm. Like these are the stories we want to put out. We were able to stop Hunter Biden's story from going out entirely, which might have even affected the election results. Meaning that's what they're talking about. I mean, it almost like in a behind the scenes way hits at how important propaganda is from yes. the standpoint of military. I mean, that's astonishing. Is the media Is Elon Musk a risk to national security? You're from Bloomberg. Why do you why do you want to know that? Like, so do you think that he's a national security threat playing into that anti-Elon Musk sentiment yeah. in these democratic circles? But that's just so warped. To say that about any business owner yeah. who hasn't been accused of doing anything that is close to being a national security threat. Yeah, that's, nothing. that's, that's astonishing. He bought a question. business yeah. that he wasn't Twitter. making any money. There's nothing any more insignificant than a tweet, right? Yeah. It sounds so ridiculous as a tweet. And yet, according to them, this is directly related to U.S. national interests. Okay, well, why? What about Facebook? Is the same thing true with Facebook? Is that also a tool of U.S.? Meaning they're pointing out that these applications are tools of U.S. interests. Mm-hmm. But the very fact of they asking the question. Yeah. Just super weird. Yeah. Is Elon Musk a threat to? And, and, and Jenny Leonard went on to say, went on to ask, and talking about Elon, and should the U.S., with all the tools you have, investigate his joint acquisition of Twitter with foreign governments, which include the Saudis. <laughs> Biden laughed, well, and, and he probably should have. Biden laughed at the question before answering, I think that Elon Musk's cooperation or technical relationships with other countries is worthy of being looked at. Whether or not he's doing anything appropriate, inappropriate, I'm not suggesting that. But it warrants being looked at. It's, I'm not even a fan of Elon Musk, but geez, his crackhead son was running from pillar to post in some of the most corrupt countries, on, making deals. In, that's amazing. That's amazing. He is, wow. <laughs> that's amazing. This is coming from the president yes. of the United States. Yes. Wow. They've raised that to that level. Yeah. Like usually you don't raise stuff above a certain level because you're the president of the United States. I mean, this is he's talking about nuclear Armageddon. So this is who we're talking about. Here. Wow. Just wow. And in international news, Russian defense minister Sergei Shogu has agreed to the suggestion of Sergei Sorovkin. Sorovkin. The Russian army general appointed commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine to withdraw troops from parts of Russia's Kherson region. The le- to the left of the Dnipro River. The decision was made as Sorovigan delivered a report to Shogu on the course of special military operation 
General Sorovkin told the defense minister that the establishment defenses along the left bank of the Dnipro River would be the most rational option in the current circumstances. He warned that should the Kiev regime proceed with his plan to destroy one of the hydroelectric plants, damn, it could lead to disastrous consequences, stressing yet again that Kiev's missile strikes on the dam have been incessant. And on September 26th, one of the spillway shutters was hit and damaged. More international news, the Joe Biden administration prodded Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to rethink his stance on talks with Russia. U.S. media reported citing White House insiders conveniently right after the midterms. Further, the nudging was ostensibly done to appease both Democrats and Republicans who have argued the need for more diplomatic stance regarding the conflagration in Ukraine, particularly ahead of the November 8 midterm elections. The report rushes to rule out any speculation that U.S. officials directly instructed Zelensky and his aides to alter their position. However, it does hint that Kiev was told to display readiness for talks in order to be seen as embracing the more high ground in the eyes of the coalition of Western countries that abhorred money and weapons into propping up the Ukraine regime. That doesn't mean they need to go to the negotiating table right now. We don't even think right now is the right time based on what Russia is doing. But they must show a willingness to resolve the conflict because no one wants this conflict to end more than Ukraine. A White House official was cited as saying. <laughs> okay, I'll move on. The 1400-megawatt Oscar Shang. Three, which is operated by OKG and is vital to power supplies in southern Sweden, shut down completely during daytime on Wednesday, November 9th, after earlier running it at reduced capacity. The closure instantly disconnected the turbine from the power grid. The halting of Sweden's largest energy producer makes an already strained supply situation even worse, though demand at present has been tempered by mild weather, immediately sending day-ahead prices for southern Sweden by 13%. More international news, Iran has developed the first national hypersonic ballistic missile. The commander of the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps Aerospace Force, Amir Ali Hajizadeh, said on Thursday, the new missile will pass all missile defense verification systems, and I don't think there will be technologies capable of resisting it for decades. Hajizadeh was quoted as saying by the Iranian media. French President Emmanuel Macron announced on Wednesday that Operation Barkane, Barkane was officially over. The eight-year counterterrorism war has been fought across five nations in Africa's Sahel. Quoting Macron, I have decided in coordination with our partners to make official today the end of the Barkane operation. Macron said in a speech on the French helicopter carrier Dick's Mood in Toulon on Wednesday. And on this day in history, 1885, German engineer Gottlieb Daimler unveils the world's first motorcycle. In 1918, Western Union Cable Office in northern Sid Sydney, Nova Scotia, receives a top-secret coded message from Europe stating that on November 11th, 1918, all fighting will cease on land, sea, and in the air. And in 1989, Germans began demolishing 
the Berlin Wall. These are your headlines for today, November 10th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, right on. Those are your headlines. So let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Mendel Chan, Malik Abdul. Back to the moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to have a conversation about the one and only Big Papa who's going to announce pretty soon. And Trump is a very interesting figure to me. Like they were saying in the beginning, how he basically put a finger on all of these other candidates. Usually when people are giving their, let's say, their support, they're giving it in minute details because they don't necessarily want to look bad if that support is showing itself to not necessarily be um, enough to get a particular candidate elected. Now, in the races that were non-competitive, um, no issue. The issue were the races that were basically competitive and how those races turned out. And looking over this, Donald Trump lost, right, many of these races that were competitive right here. And in 36 House races, the Cook Political Report rated as toss-ups. Mr. Trump endorsed endorsed just five Republicans. Each one lost on Tuesday. Quote, almost every one of these Trump-endorsed candidates that you see in competitive races lost. This is according to Chris Christie, former New New Jersey governor. Um, On Wednesday, ABC Good Morning America, quote, it's a huge loss for Trump. And again, it shows that his political instincts are not about the party. They're not about the country. They're about him, unquote. Now, you could say Chris Christie is just mad because Donald Trump had him standing behind um, him for, what, 20 minutes when he was giving his speech, or for that matter, that Donald Trump continued to rib him over and over again, and we would basically make jokes about him on the campaign trail. Or you could say that Chris Christie has somewhat of a point. And it wasn't just Chris Christie. Right here, Kaylee McKinney, a former Trump White House press secretary. I bet pretty much everybody watched the show remembers her. She says, one longtime defender of Trump said on Fox News on Wednesday that her former boss should hold off on his announcement at least until after the runoff for the Senate in Georgia. Quote, he needs to put it on pause. Absolutely. Unquote. McKinney said, if I'm advising any contender, no one announces 2024 until we get through December 6th. Now, if Donald Trump was pulling in the power or if they had this kind of belief that the Trump power train was indeed going to be the thing that got Warnock, I'm sorry, um, Herschel Walker elected, then they wouldn't tell him not to do that. All things being equal, you would think that the political gravitas of Donald Trump coming out strongly saying he's backing this particular guy and he's running for president, et cetera, would be a positive. But they're not talking about this as a positive, again, especially in competitive races. Now, you can make an argument that Herschel Walker was Donald Trump's pick. And even though people didn't necessarily like that pick, Herschel Walker is showing enough strength in order to basically get into a runoff. Fair enough. But all things being equal in competitive races, is Donald Trump a plus? Right here, quote, Republicans have followed Donald Trump off the side of a cliff David Urban, a longtime Trump advisor with ties to Pennsylvania, said in an interview, former Representative Peter King, a Republican from Long Island, has long supported Mr. Trump, said, quote, I strongly believe he should no longer be the face of the Republican Party, unquote, adding that the party can't become a cult or personality cult. When you're looking at the exit polls right here, voters' views on Trump are even more negative than on Biden right here. While voters in this year midterms hold negative views of President Joe Biden. 
I mean, at the point where three-fourths that don't run, that gives you their take. The views of his predecessor are even more negative according to the preliminary national results of the exit polls conducted for CNN and other networks by Edison Research. Only about 37% of voters in this year midterm expressed a favorable view of President Donald Trump, with about 6 in 10 voters viewing him unfavorably. About 16% of the voters of their House vote this year was intended to express support for Trump with just under 3 in 10 saying it intended to express opposition and the rest saying that Trump was not a factor. Voters' opinion of the GOP were slightly more positive than their views of Trump, with about 43% viewing the Republican Party favorably, with just over half viewing it unfavorably. More than half, about 54%, say the GOP is too extreme. But think about that for a moment. You get a situation where the voters are basically viewing the Republican Party in a better light than they're viewing the guy who's basically the head or the face of that Republican Party. That is super interesting. And what does that mean for the Republican race coming up um, in a few years, in a couple of years? Now, interestingly enough, at the point where you get mano y mano, one-on-one, and if you do get a um, situation where Donald Trump is running, if it's not Joe Biden, I got to be honest, I don't know who it would be. And if it is Joe Biden, is that a safe bet? Now, Democrats this year, Maybe praying, I said earlier that they were praying for abortion to be on the ballot because at the very least, I couldn't figure out anything else that they basically had to run on. And even though the closer we got to the election, I started to think that the issue of abortion started to weigh less. Apparently, I was wrong on that. It did weigh and it did shape many of the people who were voting, especially from the standpoint of some of those governor races. But what about Trump himself when it comes down to the presidency? And would Trump, let's say how he is, be somewhat of an outsized impact on the race itself. And I got to be honest, it depends on Trump. I mean, Donald Trump has a way of being his best ally, but is also his worst enemy. And sometimes he says things that come across poorly, even though a policy he may take may actually be legitimately good. Meaning, for example, if Donald Trump is going to run this race and he's going to run against Joe Biden, I strongly suspect if he decides to take the open lane of look at inflation, look at the wars, look at what's happening in Ukraine, look at what's happening in Europe. And in making that particular argument, Joe Biden is particularly susceptible to that particular argument because that argument will, for all intents and purposes, be true. Meaning, if the American public is looking at Joe Biden and says Biden's fault, meaning Biden is responsible for inflation, even if they don't necessarily know all of the geopolitical details and the wrangling of it and everything else, they still can look at the president, say Democrats were in the House, they were in the Senate, Joe Biden was in office. Joe Biden wed himself to the issue of Ukraine. I may not know chapter and verse about Ukraine, but I do know when the president is responsible. They're going to look at the inflation. They're going to look at what Joe Biden was saying on the issue of inflation. It's transient. It's transient and transient. Donald Trump is going to come in and say, when I was in, this wasn't an issue for us. When I was in, Kim Jong-un wasn't firing missiles over, you know, in the Sea of Japan. When I was in, Ukraine wasn't being attacked. Meaning he's going to make this argument. And unfortunately for the Democratic Party, how do you defend against this particular argument? Yeah, you could say Ukraine is important. You could say Putin did this and Putin did that. But all things being equal, does Donald Trump have a point? Meaning all things being equal, Trump kept us out of wars. And I think that's the problem. If you can attach what is taking place in Ukraine to the issue of inflation, to the issue of food costs? If you can attach Joe Biden saying Biden didn't necessarily care about these things, you point to the constituencies that are getting hit by this. You point to the damage that is taking place in the U.S. as a direct result of the policies that Biden is basically pushing. And if you can tie him to that, if you can tie him to that, 
Meaning, regardless of these negative marks that Donald Trump is getting into this particular race, regardless of the competitive races going to his opposition, can you really make the case that even though Democrats may be praying that Donald Trump wins this, is that really the guy that you want to take on? Think back to when Donald Trump was going against Jeb Bush. What did he do? On a crowd of Republicans on stage with, what, 20 other Republicans, crawls over the corpse of each of those Republicans in order to take it. And one of the key, I would say, remembrance points of Donald Trump in that race was when he turned to Jeb Bush and said, your brother got all of those people killed, all of those servicemen, ends up going into that particular conflict. And he goes into that on the premise of a lie. What did the crowd do? They cheered. Now, all things been equal, when you listen to Republicans, you would think that these are the red meat party. This is the party that likes to go in um, and knock over governments. And yet you have a Republican running for office that is basically not just repudiating that, but attacking the party in and of itself as a direct result, meaning attacking the brother of the guy that was responsible for that and getting applause for doing so. What does that look like with Joe Biden? Meaning, can you still see that particular situation with, instead of it being Jeb Bush, it being Joe Biden? Meaning this may be one of the first campaigns that is run primarily on the issue of foreign policy. Yes, domestic policy is going to come up from the standpoint of inflation and those type of things. Donald Trump is going to turn to Biden with $30 trillion in debt. You're giving $50 billion to Ukraine for a war that should have never taken place. Meaning I think Joe Biden is particularly susceptible to that. That regardless of who's going to run and all things been equal, Joe Biden has the run because I got to be honest, I don't necessarily know who's going to run in his stead if he doesn't necessarily run. And if somebody else runs, the chances for Democrats holding it goes down. It's one thing when the incumbent has control of the political space and that incumbent is running. It's another thing when that incumbent decides not to run for whatever particular reason that incumbent decides not to run, whether it's senseless or whether he can't necessarily get his facts and figures straight, whatever that reason is. If Joe Biden decides to run, Donald Trump has a very specific lane in going to try to get into office. And that specific lane is going to go through foreign policy. And I guess that's kind of my point. Regardless of how Trump looks in this case and backing all of these random candidates, it's another thing him himself when he's running one-on-one against the president. And that president has all of these negatives associated with him, whether you want to talk about Afghanistan, whether you want to talk about COVID. You may not necessarily bring up COVID because Trump's not great on that either. But all things been equal from the standpoint of the inflation that this public is dealing with, the cost of food that this public is dealing with, a president that didn't necessarily seem to care all that much about the households and what American households were facing in the face or in lieu of Ukraine. Yeah, Trump may have his issues of weakness from the standpoint of backing a particular candidate or in these competitive races. But I don't necessarily think that weakness shows when he's in a one-on-one with Joe Biden, who has all of these failings associated with him and his presidency and this kind of undercutting of American power around the globe. If Joe Biden is losing in Ukraine from the standpoint of a military or for that matter, if from the standpoint of economics and if the American public is being hit by that and the American public feels that, meaning you may have a situation where media doesn't bring this up and you are able to get media not bring this up for two, three years, give or take. But what happens when the president, former president, is bringing this up directly and is attaching this to inflation and attaching this to gas prices and attaching this to all of these failings that have taken place for this administration. Can Joe Biden withstand that? And I have a hard time believing that answer is yes, considering whatever you think of Trump, I think the American public deeply, deeply feels it, despite the fact that the American media wouldn't necessarily say it. I tell you this much, they're not going to have a choice. 
And the moment that Donald Trump hits on that particular, that line, that, that particular um, note, the other Republicans are going to be less sheepish about bringing that up. The other Republicans that are in the population itself, I don't necessarily mean the candidates. Yes, some of those candidates are going to be perfectly fine bringing that up. I'm talking about this idea that there's going to be a level of comfort. It's going to create a space by which the Republicans can complain and point the finger at Biden on that particular issue. And the media is not going to be able to ignore it in the way that they've been able to ignore this over the last several years. Yes, Donald Trump may show a bit of weakness in this particular situation, but when he's running for office, I don't think that weakness is going to be there in the specific way it is with him backing the candidates. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Vanilla Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what all of us are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share the audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And I want to bring in our guests. We have the one and only Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. Mark, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? Jamal, Manila, Malik, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. It is always an honor and a pleasure to have you join us. Like I said, you're easily one of my favorite people to talk to. Um, so let's get into the conversation. So Defense Minister uh, Sergei Shorgu has ordered the Russian troops to pull back from the city of Kherson and establish a new defensive line along the Dnieper River. Now, I saw a clip of him give this speech um, or this conversation. He did not look happy, to put it mildly. Um, give us the explanation of what is going on with this. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, this is a pullback that took many people by surprise, uh, including myself. Uh, so um, I would not have predicted this. And everything is not clear at the moment. There is a lot of fog of war about this situation. The Kiev regime uh, surrogates, the uh, active, uh, you know, making statements uh, on behalf of the regime, including the presidential advisor, Mikhail uh, Popoyok, are basically saying they don't believe this. They see no indication that Russia is pulling back the other side of the Dnieper, uh, abandoning half of her zone, and, and they're basically still calling it a trap, which they have been doing for several weeks. On the other hand, uh, when General uh, Sorovikin, uh, he was previously the commander of this southern area uh, during uh, the initial phases of the Russian intervention in the Ukrainian civil conflict. Uh, and he had a lot of success uh, in this area. When he first became, uh, he had previously warned that it might be necessary to withdraw from that side of Harrison City because it flows across the Dnieper and because of the Kiev regime targeting uh, supply lines across bridges uh, in particular, but not only with 
the U.S. supplied uh, HIMARS, um, a multiple launch rocket system, uh, which is a longer range system. Um, he had earlier talked that it might be necessary at some point. And when he became um, the overall, the first overall battlefield commander for the entire intervention force, he at the time spoke that there, there might in the near future be need to make dis- difficult decisions. Uh, and it would appear to have been foreshadowing this, and there was always the possibility of that. Um, so, I mean, the, the array of forces, as far as we can tell, uh, the Kiev regime has assembled about 60,000 forces in northern Kherson, uh, largely out of the uh, Krivoyrok uh, direction. Um, an industrial town to the north. Um, and um, Russia uh, has somewhere around 40,000 forces, which is a uh, reinforced grouping, including some of the first reservists to have finished uh, retraining that have been called up, those who just got out of service a year or two ago. Now, that's a pretty significant force. I mean, the Russian forces are still outnumbered, but Russian forces have been outnumbered by Ukrainian forces during the entirety of this conflict, often with much greater ratios, and still been on the offensive. So, uh, you know, the question, uh, the way uh, Shoigu and Surovikin talked about this is one of supply. Um, and again, that goes back to the, the long-range targeting of the Kiev regime on the bridges, uh, primarily pontoon, regular bridges, pontoon bridges that were being erected. But we've had no word. Uh, I have not gotten any word in the past month or two that supply was specifically threatened, that, that they were having difficulty. The, the, the word was that always that it was fine. And that's what was getting from the Ministry of Defense and what I was getting from sources in, in, in the Russian forces and local forces uh, in, in Kherson. The, the particular specter that they raised in their rationale for this uh, withdrawal is the possibility. Well, I mean, it's more than just a possibility that the, the real threat of, yes, the Kiev regime blowing up the Kohovka Reservoir Dam, which is a dam. It is also a bridge up across the reservoir there, so, you know, um, a carry-on from the Dnieper, and it is a hydroelectric station. And the Kiev regime has been attacking that dam now for months with HIMARS and other uh, systems. Uh, But Russia has, has, you know, and they did it just this last weekend, they fired more HIMARS against it. I think it was around six, uh, six rounds, you know, uh, six missiles that they fired, and supposedly five of them were knocked down by Russian air defense. One got through, and we were told at the time that it was superficial damage. This could flood uh, the entire theater, including much of Harrison City, and it would make resupply across the river practically impossible for a period of time, for a period of, of some three to five days. Now, the, the Kiev regime, rather cynically, as they blame everything on Russia, has accused that it's Russia that wants to blow up. <laughs> Here's part of the problem is if this dam is blown up, that ends the flow of water to the Crimea Canal which ends the flow of water to the Crimea, which was a significant 
development in the first days of the intervention is one of the first things that Russia, because the uh, Kiev regime had built the dam uh, in 2014 to punish the Crimean people for choosing wrong, uh, blocking the flow of water to, to the people of Crimea, a crime against humanity by, by any definition. So that was certainly one of the first things that Russia restored. And it had done a lot of damage over those eight years, particularly to um, agriculture in the Crimea, but also resulting in, in, in uh, intermittent uh, civilian water rationing. So uh, that was significant. And I do not believe that Russia would blow up that dam and threaten the water supply to the Crimea. Of course not. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that is... I mean, that is the scenario by which they made this decision. Uh, the Kiev regime says that Russia has 30 to 50,000 troops on what is now, the, you know, the, the, their side of the Dnieper, the right bank, as, as they call it. Um, that's going to take several days to withdraw, and everyone should be able to see it, right? Certainly U.S. satellites, you know, constantly uh, viewing the conflict uh, in close detail and sending the information back to Kiev, we'll, we'll be able to see this withdrawal. Um, and it, it seems very unlikely that it would be uncontested. The Kiev regime should try with whatever long-range artillery they, they can muster to attack the bridges that would be taking the troops across. Again, there's the conundrum that there's obviously bridges there to re retreat the troops with, but they say not enough to supply them, at least not under. So that, that is the damn scenario. We'll see what happens uh, in the next few days, but it will take them several days uh, to get these troops uh, back onto that side. Now, the, the strategy, first of all, it's going to be a big political blow to to Putin personally, but, you know, to the Russian government in general, because they had just recognized after referendums that, you know, that they held uh, Kherson as part of Russia. And this is the regional capital, Kherson city, and they are withdrawing from, you know, the majority of it uh, to the, you know, to the far side of the Dnieper. So uh, this will is definitely being celebrated, a huge Kiev regime victory. But here's the thing. They have been pressing uh, since Jake Sullivan's, I mean, they've been pressing all along, but particularly since Jake Sullivan's visit, the Kiev regime started their big push on Harrison. Uh, they started moving everything to the front lines. And in the last several days of, of a renewed big push, just like previous pushes, they haven't penetrated Russian defensive lines at all. Uh, and they, they got their, their, their butts handed to them with a lot of artillery, long-range missile strikes, aviation, and they were all repulsed and sent scurrying back. So uh, that there's a lot of um, gnashing and wailing of teeth in Russian expert uh, circles saying, why, why, is, why is this necessary? Um, because there was, there's, no, there's been no military defeat. There's been no battlefield defeat. If anything, if it is a strategic victory for Kiev, it is one of maneuver. It is of cutting of supply lines and the threat of this dam. But the, I think other than the political damage there, first of all, it will, it, it will mean that there is no Russian move towards Nikolaev or Odessa anywhere in the near future, because that will mean then making a contested river crossing to take back the Dnieper which will, of course, be much harder because originally it wasn't really contested because 
the Kiev regime forces, the, the politicians in Kherson basically just switched sides. There was no real fighting uh, in the south in the initial of the conflict. Uh, so that will become much more difficult, and it, it means it won't happen any time in the foreseeable future. The other thing is that Russia will still have to defend large areas of Kherson on the other side of the Dnieper, and it will be a more defensible position, particularly around the area of Kherson city. But it means that there will be a renewed Kiev regime push to the north end in the Bereslav direction of the Kherson region, uh, where they will not be prevented there, and they will be basically pushing for the Kohovka Reservoir Dam area. Um, and if that falls, that means that the water supply to Crimea, again, is lost, will be lost. And it also will call up the specter of, uh, of actual assaults on Crimea. And there is our reports. I've seen some photos. I haven't con had them confirmed yet, but that Russia has begun establishing trenches, defensive trenches, in northern Crimea area, which, you know, does not bode well. So um, once again, there's a lot of recriminations and anger going around of this a second seen as very humiliating withdrawal without a what many find to be a convincing rationale for it. So we'll see, have to see how this plays out in the next few days. But I don't see any scenario other than this is some type of 3D uh, Maskarovka uh, trap uh, where this is uh, good for the Russian intervention in the South. Now, Mark, let's let's talk, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the diplomatic side, because as you know, the U.S. elections, the midterms are, are not really complete at this point, uh, but there are a lot of fears that that should the Democrats retain power. It's going to be a blank check given to Kiev. Uh, so there's that fear here stateside. Very few people um, have the political courage or the will to stand up against that, to say we're not sending any more money and any more weapons. Now, further to that, the, the international coalition that has been backing Kiev at this point, there's starting to be a shift in in power and what their rhetoric is. Like, for example, Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, his, uh, what's his party called? Forza? Forza Italia, I believe. Um, they, they are coming, you know, they're part of the, the new coalition along with the, the new uh, prime minister's party. And he's basically, last week he said um, that the West should effectively stop giving weapons to Kiev. And that that will will be the only way to bring about peace, because if uh, Volodymyr Zelensky cannot depend on this constant flow of money, constant flow of arms, then that will force him to actually come to grips to talk to the Russians, because the Russians have signaled that they they're willing to talk and the West is giving out mixed signals. So what do you think of what the Europeans, you know, the shift in power over there, the potential shift? here in the U.S., what that will do to the diplomatic talks. I, I don't think that it, it provides anything, to be frank. I do not believe that even if the Republicans won a resounding victory in both the House and the Senate, that that would result in any change in U.S. policy of supply to the Kiev regime. And the Republicans, you know, most involved, the, the House minority leader, uh, who could soon be the House majority leader, maybe, maybe not, we don't even know at this point, 
hey, even he was only talking about accountability, right? I mean, when you, when you say blank checks, it doesn't mean the flow of arms stop. And supposedly there are already U.S. uniformed U.S. military troops on the ground in Ukraine, supposedly co- conducting weapons inspections. And I know that there are a, a one or two, shall we say, the more populist branch of the Republican Party making statements about wanting to end the, the, the supply of weapons. But I do not believe that that position is respective of the general Republican Party leadership the elite, certainly not of the figures in the Senate, Mitch McConnell and the like. And, and I think that there are more than enough Republicans that would have voted with the Democrats uh, to continue a, a completely uninterrupted uh, flow of arms. Now, I, I do think that the flow of arms will decrease anyway, simply because the U.S. is running out of modern, uh, you know, of, of systems that can be u- of use to the Kiev regime that they can send. So, I mean, there is that, but I don't believe that political changes would have resulted from that. No political changes resulted effectively in U.S. foreign policy towards Russia uh, when Trump became president, despite his intention to do so. In fact, there was an escalation uh, in and, and tensions increased and 80 packages of sanctions leveled. And it was Trump who first started sending weapons, uh, lethal weapons to the Kiev regime. So I, I don't believe that there would have been it. I don't believe in changes in U.S. foreign policy, to be frank. Whether you want to call it the deep state or the blob or whatever you want to call it, U.S. foreign policy does not significantly change whether Coke or Pepsi uh, has has more power uh, currently in, in the White House or in, in the Congress. Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't believe in those fictions. Hey, Mark, it's uh, just a question. Speaking of Weapons. I was doing some reading, and apparently the Russian National Security Council, the head of the National Security Council, Nikolai Petrushev. Petrushev. Petrushev, Petrushev. yes. Yeah. So he apparently is over in Iran. Now, from Russia's perspective, he's over there to discuss joint projects. You know, it's a regular thing that they do. They have security um, consultations. So that's from Russia's perspective. From the U.S. media's perspective, and I just want to, because when I saw it, I kind of chuckled and said to myself, so from the U.S. media's perspective, it says, Western and Ukrainian officials warn that Russia is trying to secure high-tech Iranian missiles and drones to deploy on the battlefield. Now, this is what Western media is reporting. What What is, or for one, even if the, uh, Petrushev is actually over there to discuss something different than what they were saying, it's not just your usual routine negotiations, and they're actually discussing maybe purchasing some weapons or something. Can you explain this U.S., this Western resistance to the idea of Russia um, getting weapons from Iran. What is that based on? Yeah, so um, Russia has obviously already gotten uh, drones, or at least the drone design and the mm-hmm. rights to domestically produce them, of the uh, Shahed-136, the, the Russian um, locally built, slightly different variation, the uh, Garan the geranium too, uh, as it's called, and has used them to great, great, very great effect. The principal advantage they have supplementing Russia's existing drone, and including uh, kamikaze drone or uh, toolbox, is that they are effective, they are long range, and they are dirt cheap to produce. Right. 
you can they be fired in swarms and you can not knock a few of them down and some of them will always penetrate through to the target and when you can fire off an effective long-range drone driven by a propeller engine for twenty thousand dollars and the missiles uh you know uh, surface-to-air missiles air defense systems that might bring it down cost several factors more to make they, they become far far more uh, expensive to shoot down than they than they are to produce. Um, and Russia became familiar with Iranian drones uh, during the conflict in Syria. And I believe game, uh, there are people, including Surovikin, who was in theater, who gained a lot of respect for them, for Iran's ability to produce these domestically, right, despite all of the sanctions against them and and for their effectiveness and the sustainability of using them large scale in a combat because they are so dirt cheap. Russia has a a good range of of such drones itself, the Lancet, the Cub, and we see videos all the time of you them using them. But this is another tool in the toolbox. And I I, I believe the Russian, uh, or sorry, the U.S. media uh, is, and, and Kiev is absolutely right about this. That is certainly one of the things Petrushev is sealing. It's long been talked about. It's been talked about for months. I mentioned it on one of my own reports on my own YouTube channel uh, a few weeks ago that um, Russia is looking to buy some more uh, uh, either the drones or the rights, uh, you know, to produce local variations of the drones, uh, uh, the Arashtva, um, as well as some uh, 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 surface-to-surface short-range ballistic missiles, two particular models. And again, what Russia is looking at is, is cheapness. Yeah, so Mark, I guess what Mike, yeah, so could you, what is the U.S. opposition to that, though? Because they're, they, they seem to be... Because they're the other side. I mean, it's just it's just pure hypocrisy. We can give everything, including the kitchen sink, you know, the Kimars, whatever we want to Kiev. But how dare anyone supply the other side in this conflict? Because we're essentially at war. That's that's the, the fury. Right. And it's two of the great evils in the world for the U.S., you know, forces that resist them, Iran and Russia military cooperating together again. They really don't like that. So while they can supply arms without any limit, without a, you you know, any, uh, you know, all the taxpayer money in the world funding into this regime with its state armed and funded neo-Nazi battalions that seized power in Ukraine. The uh, it, it, it they have still have nothing to do with the conflict. Right. That's that's what we're told. But Iran supplies a drone design to Russia and suddenly they are a direct participant in the conflict. Right. That, that's standard U.S. hypocrisy. And, and I mean, uh, I, I don't think. Anyone who's paying attention takes such um, uh, fury, outrage. Um, Mark, there are two stories that have popped up. One, it doesn't seem like the media can get a story straight in the U.S. Initially, they said that the U.S. was trying to push them to negotiate, meaning push Ukraine to negotiate. But in the Washington Post report, it said, but they're not really trying to do that. They're just trying to get the appearance of them doing that. Now, NBC News is basically reporting that Sullivan was testing the waters. It says right here, advisor Jake Sullivan tested the waters during his visit to Kiev. Um, added, the White House said his visit was meant to underscore the U.S. steadfast support for Ukraine and his people. But they're kind of making this point now that, okay, maybe they are trying to push a little bit. Is this tied on any way to the Harrison thing? I mean, from my assessment, it was, look, we want... They were looking for to save face. That's what I, I kept thinking, that they were basically trying to get Ukraine to push for this Harrison offensive 
and after doing so to say, okay, now we're going to come to some kind of agreement, some to that effect. And there's another story that, that popped up here. Deputy head of Harrison killed in a road accident. And this is, Strum, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher his name, but Kirill Strumosov. Um, basically, this was a person who basically would give updates on what was taking place. And if I'm not mistaken, was even given updates a day prior to the point where they say he was basically killed in a road accident. Um, are these things related? Meaning the road accident also in the pullout. It just seems coincidental that these things are taking place together. And was it indeed a road accident? Road accident seems, I don't know, a little too on the nose. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the deputy head of, of Herson region, Kirill uh, Stremosov, the reports are that he died in a car accident. Um, of course, the Kiev regime has been waging a campaign of political assassinations of anyone in East Ukraine, former East Ukraine, now, you know, East Ukraine, now the former East Ukraine, uh, who uh, was aligned with Russia. I mean, they've been doing this for a long time. Uh, they've been fairly successful at this. So there's a lot of questions about this. Uh, it was not obviously su uh, such an assassination. There's not actually a lot of evidence that he was actually killed. And Russia, when they have learned against active assassination plots previously, has uh, had their Russia intelligence, the FSB, fake some of these uh, former East Ukrainian officials' deaths to get them out of the line of fire for a few weeks. And then they have reappeared uh, later. And this is what the Kiev regime channels are suggesting is happening in this particular situation. Oh, they so I'm good. Yeah, he may still be alive or he, he it could be just a tragic coincidence or it could have been a political assassination. I'm tending more towards the explanation uh, that that it was it's being staged to get him out of the line of fire. But let's wait a month. And, and see if he shows up again or, or not. Russia has done it already, uh, and it has been successful, at least temporary, in saving the lives of some of these people targeted for political assassination. But uh, we'll wait and see on that one. With regards to the Jake Sullivan, uh, this, you know, him, that the, the U.S. administration obviously feeding lines to the Washington Post <laughs> on exactly how to say, right? You know, no, 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 no. Make sure this is in the subtitle, right? You know, because we want to get the messaging clear. It's as clear as mud. You don't say it loud. Like, like for them to write in the article, but they're not really pushing them to do it. It's just super weird. And, and them saying outright that this is directed at, you know, uh, other countries supplying Ukraine to to at least be able to take them. You know, this is directed at Europe. And there's a lot of European political elite saying, hey, our people are protesting in the streets. Energy bills are 800 percent. Inflation is spiraling. They can't afford anything. Can, 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 we, can we give them a fig leaf and at least say we're trying to talk? And the U.S. is saying, yes. You can tell them that we're trying to talk, but in the sub headlines, we're not really trying to talk. This is just right, PR, right? right? And which is like, it, it has such contempt for the intelligence of the European people. Um, you know, uh, here's your bone to toss to the plebes, but my God, those plebes. We feel really bad that we have to toss them a bone. I mean, that's what it reads. You know, you, it might have been the, the third sub hotline. It should have been, and Vicky Newland still says F the EU, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that should have been 
the, the third, you know, uh, headline, you know, the headline, sub headline, sub sub headline. It's really um, pathetic. I find it. Um, I, it's so, you know, the, the way it goes back and forth and back and forth. And what I'm really sure about is that Jake Sullivan was in Kiev giving the final marching orders for the, the push on Kherson just a couple of days before it started in earnest. So I don't believe that there's any serious peace negotiations on either side, to be frank. We're not at that point yet. Always appreciate your commentary, man. The voice, like I said, voice of truth. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. And you can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one Definitely check out his new YouTube channel at RealPolitik with Mark Sloboda. You can also find him on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gramsci. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Manila Chan. We're joined by Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. We continue to be joined with Malik Abdul um, joining us. So let's do this. We... God, man, love talking to Mark um, Sloboda. He always gives us kind of really good commentary on what's taking place, regardless of what the news is. So he's always good on that front um, and giving us an explanation of why. I got to be honest. It's like bitter. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I got to be honest, the, the, I never thought of, okay, maybe the guy's not really whacked or dead or anything. I mean, he might show up in a month and it's like, what? It's just. I don't know. As I was saying off air, like, that's why there's like body doubles. Yeah. There's, I mean, all, you know, it sounds tinfoil hat. But see, the rub with the body double true. is somebody might try to whack the body double. I know. <laughs> I mean, like, you but know like, what? I guess they but sign the up point. for it, right? That's yeah. the point, right? Is it? Kill the body double. I mean, but is it a better alternative just to be like, all right, this guy's dead. And then a month later, he's going to show up in Paris or somewhere like that. It's kind of like the people, I don't know if they still do that, where the, they have people who test who eat the food before yeah, the... Yeah, it's like the king. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. Um, it's the taster. They call him the taster. Yeah. If the taster so if you dies... Go down, <laughs> you go right. <laughs> right. Well, right. Some, some... Hey, it's an it's a job. It's a job. Not You're a, employed. Not, not a fun one, That's but it's a job. the risk of that job, the dangers of that job. Yeah. You know what you're signing up for. Jeez, man. You don't have to be the chef or Talking the taster. About a workplace hazard. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that guy get insurance? Right. How does that work? Probably good life insurance. Does maybe. body double get a life insurance? I don't know. I would hope so. Oh, jeez, man. Because that's a dangerous job. If you're like Kim Jong Un's body double, oh. first of all, you'd be fed. You fed well. <laughs> yeah, so. ish, <laughs> kind of. I mean, is that because well, the... you got to stay plump to look like Kim Jong Un? There's that part, right? You so can't you lose got, weight. You can't lose weight. You know, there's a movie like that. There's a. Um, Although I think they said a, he lost a, weight a little a, bit. What is it? It's a movie. They're talking about the Middle East. It's a man. I can't think of the name of it. But the guy's a body double for the king, and in being the body double for the king, he has to keep appearances up. Right. They had to what? They had to shape his body in a particular way, so he had to get like surgeries and these Whoa. painful procedures and stuff like that. Yeah, the movie was actually quite good. 
It was oh, quite good. Weird movie. It was a series. I'm sorry. It was a series. But it was good. I can't think you of the name of it. You always watch the weirdest thing. It was good. It was good. I don't even know how I ended up watching, but it was good. <laughs> but look, let's get into headlines. In the news, Senate races. Main story. Republicans, 49 seats. Democrats hold 48. House of Representatives, 209 seats for Republicans. Nine more are needed to take power. Democrats hold 191. That is at 645 this morning. And no, we still don't know the results of the midterm elections, or at the very least, who is going to be holding power in Congress. Most likely, Republicans are going to take the House, set it up for grabs. We'll see. Once we get the news in, we will give you the heads up, even if that takes several weeks for us to do it. Please, God, no. Hope it doesn't take that long. Let's keep going. In domestic news, the red wave pundits predicted what happened in U.S. midterms of the elections didn't happen. President Joe Biden underscored during the Wednesday address on the incoming results of the highly anticipated midterm elections. Quote, while the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, it didn't happen. Unquote, Biden told reporters, adding that the event marked by, quote, a good day, unquote, for democracy. Good, quote, good day for democracy, a good day for America, Biden continued. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but the American people have spoken and proven democracy is who we are because we voted Democrats. Democrats, the the very meaning of democracy itself. It's almost like sacrosanct. I mean, granted, these are the same people who are basically eliminating the ability for you to say what you want to say online or pushing these social media companies in order to hinder what you say, or for that matter, the level of speech. I mean, keep in mind, with the Ukraine war, something as important as war, how they basically eliminated all alternate points of view that may get you out of this particular war. Yeah, this doesn't necessarily bespeak of democracy to me, but whatever, let's keep going. The Biden administration is planning to release later on Wednesday a transcript of a 2004 interview with former U.S. President George W. Bush and former Vice President Dick Cheney gave to a bipartisan government commission investigating 9-11 terrorist attacks, U.S. media has reported. The interview with the commission took place in April 2004 in the Oval Office. It included a discussion of intelligence warnings received prior to the attacks. The Wall Street Journal reported, citing a copy of the document and a person familiar with the matter. During the interview, Bush acknowledged that Air Force One had poor communications when he was on the plane and the attacks unfolded and asserted that he authorized Cheney to shoot down unresponsive commercial airliners, according to the report. Wow. I mean, look, I. this is one of those... Let's talk about this after, because I'm fascinated by this. Because, it look, this is not a normal period, right? You have no idea what those airplanes are. I mean, you have planes basically flying into buildings. Do you allow the plane to potentially fly into another building, or do you shoot the plane down? I guess that's the question that Bush was posed with. Um, yeah. We'll come back to that one. U.S. President Joe Biden noted during a Wednesday address on midterm election results that billionaire Elon Musk needed to be looked at, quote, unquote. They need to look at Elon Musk when asked whether the entrepreneur was a threat to U.S. national security. Quote, do you think Elon Musk is a threat to U.S. national security? Unquote. Jenny Lennard of Bloomberg asked, and should the U.S., with all of the tools that you have, investigate his joint acquisition of Twitter with the government, with foreign governments, which include the Saudis, our allies. Biden laughed at the question before answering, quote, I think Elon Musk's cooperation and or technical relationship with other countries is worthy of being looked at. Whether or not he is doing anything inappropriate, I'm not suggesting that. It warrants being looked at, unquote. Because he bought Twitter? Because he bought Twitter? You're looking at Elon Musk now with all the tools available? 
with all the tools available, you have to investigate. Are you serious? I don't think they did that to Jeff Bezos. When he I don't think they did that to Hunter Biden. I don't think they did that to Hunter Biden. Are you serious? But he didn't buy Twitter. No, he was just working at a radically corrupt energy company in Ukraine while his dad was a viceroy of Ukraine. But nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here at all. It wasn't a pundit who said it. It was an actual journalist who asked that right. question. And it's Leonard, Jenny Leonard from Bloomberg. That's amazing. Do you need to look at Elon Musk yeah, now? Yeah, just look. Why? Because he purchased Twitter. Uh, that's what, SpaceX? what reason? No. What does that mean? Like, what does that even mean? Like, because you, he no. purchased Twitter. What like, it means is it has everything to do with this notion that Twitter, Facebook, and those social media companies are tools of U.S. interest. Meaning this idea of pushing propaganda, pushing news well, stories, or that. holding those news stories. But, but for him to say it publicly? Yes, they're saying the quiet part out loud. Say it publicly that be, like, this is the reason to investigate yes. him is because he bought Twitter. Twitter. A social media company, and not like, SpaceX, what? not the satellites that are funding Ukraine's internet services, what I'm not that, to see, but Twitter. And I hope I don't sneeze right now as I'm talking, but I feel like it's coming. But what I, I'm curious to see is because the government relies so heavily on SpaceX uh-huh. to get to the ISS, uh-huh. I wonder if there's going to be a rift there. Well, that's the wild part, right? Usually with people like, let's say, Bezos or Musk, when they're building these space companies, that is something that the U.S. loves, which is why they invest so heavily in those companies, because it allows our capabilities. The idea that you're, it's not that that's the issue, it's Twitter. And right. it's like, it's a social media. That's <laughs> what I mean. Like, like 240 so if, characters? If the Biden administration has beef with Elon over Twitter. Does he take it out on some other way? Does he take it out on SpaceX? Yeah. Are they going to shift reliance to to Jeff Bezos's uh, Blue Origin. Well, both are being used. I mean, both were getting money from the government. So for, yeah, for R and D, but yeah. they haven't relied on Blue Origin to take them to the. Yeah. You know, I guess maybe nobody wants to ride on a, a <laughs> penis-shaped penis rocket yeah. ship. <laughs> like that, I don't know. That ship is so vulgar. It's so <laughs> vulgar. Not a, I wouldn't even let my kids watch it if I had. I know. I'm like, oh. It's like, Blue no, Origin's cover launching. Their eyes. Cover your eyes. Cover their eyes. <laughs> That's a Blue cover Origin eyes. launch. Cover your eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's keep going. That's that's, that's so bad. But but it's true. I mean, if you've ever seen that ship go up, it's It's disgusting. Yeah, horrible design. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu has agreed with the suggestion of Sergei Sovrolkin, the Russian Army General, appointed commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine to withdraw troops from parts of Russia's Kherson region to the left bank of the Dnieper River. The decision was made by Sovrolkin. How do I pronounce that? Is it Sovrolkin? Am I pronouncing it right? Sovrolkin. Thank you. Sorovican, um, delivered a report to Shogu, who, of course, of the special military operation. Savoykin, or General Savoykin, told the defense minister that the establishment of the defenses along the left bank of the Dnieper River will be a more rational option in the current circumstances. He warned that should Kiev regime proceed with his plans to destroy the Kuroshka hydroelectric plant and dam, it could lead to disastrous consequences. He stressed yet again that Kiev's missile strikes on the dam have been incessant, and on September 26th, one of the spillway's shutters was hit and damaged. Now, we just had that conversation with Mark Sloboda. You can definitely go back at 7.30 and check that conversation out for more context on that story. Let's keep, go- let's keep going. The Joe Biden administration proceeded, I'm sorry, prodded Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to rethink his stance on talks with Russia, U.S. media reported, citing White House insiders. Furthermore, the, quote, nudging was ostensibly done to appease both Democrats and Republicans who have argued the need for more diplomatic stance regarding the, confl- the conflagration 
in Ukraine, particularly ahead of the November 8th midterm elections. The report rushes to rule out any speculation that the United States officially directly instructed Zelensky and his aides to alter their position. However, it does hint that Kiev was told to display readiness for talks in order to be seen as embracing the, quote, moral high ground, unquote, in the eyes of the coalition of Western countries that have poured money and weapons into propping up the Ukrainian regime. Quote, that doesn't mean they need to go to the negotiating table right now. We don't even think right now is the right time based on what Russia is doing, but they must show a willingness to resolve the conflict because no one wants the conflict to end more than Ukraine, unquote, a White House official was cited as saying. Okay, sure. That's why Zelensky is screaming about not negotiating and feel betrayed that this even came up in Western media. Sure. The 1400 megawatt Ashkaram 3, which is operated by OKG and is vital to power supplies in southern Sweden, shut down completely during the daytime on Wednesday, November 9th, after earlier running a reduced capacity at reduced capacity. The closure instantly disconnected the turbine from the power grid. The halting of Sweden's largest energy producer makes an already strained supply situation even worse, though demand at present has been tempered by mild winter, immediately sending day-ahead prices for southern Sweden by 13%. I guess they're saying send prices up 13%. Iran has developed the first national hypersonic ballistic missile. The commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Aerospace Force, Amir Ali Haji Zayed, said on Thursday, quote, this new missile will pass all missile defense verification systems, and I don't think there will be technologies capable of resisting it for decades, unquote, he said, as quoted um, by the Iranian media. Everybody thinks that for their new weapons. Eventually, there's always a, a, a response. Let's keep going. French President Emmanuel Macron announced on Wednesday that Operation Barkane was officially over. The eight-year counterterrorism war has been fought across five nations in Africa's Sahel. Quote, I have decided, in coordination with our partners, to make official today the end of the Barkane operation. Unquote. Macron said in a speech in French helicopter carrier, De Muxud, on Toulon on Wednesday. And this day in history, in 1885, German engineer Gotha Damler unveils the world's first motorcycle. In 1918, Western Union Cable Office in North Sydney, Nova Scotia, receives a top-secret coded message from Europe stating, on November 11th, 1918, all fighting will cease on land, sea, and in the air. In 1989, Germans began demolishing the Berlin Wall. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Like I said, we're also joined by Malik Abdul. I really want to have this conversation about the George Bush thing, but we're going to have to get to it. We try to get to it at nine o'clock. I'm fascinated by that because yeah. it puts you. Too. Yeah. I mean, because it, it puts you in this kind of weird space of a president thinking to himself, OK, what do we do about the planes that are in the air that are potentially hitting buildings? Right. What because do you do? These are still civilian aircraft. Yes. Exactly. That's the worst part. That's the worst part. Meaning you might have 300 people on that plane. 300 Americans, yeah. let's say. Because you're trying to shoot a kill a ter- terrorist. Exactly. There. Right. American casualties on your own soil. On your own soil. Like, yeah. imagine that. that. That's, yeah. Having to make that decision. That is, that is a rough decision. Real. Yeah. That is, yeah. yeah. Talk about Hobbs' choice. But look, let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Minnelli Cham, Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We will try to get to your calls by 845 or for that matter, 945. But we're bringing our guests. We have Dr. Karin Kneisel. Um, she's a former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Austria and an energy analyst. Dr. Kneisel, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Thank you very much for the kind invitation. I'm doing fine. Thank you. I hope that's also the case for you. Yes, we are doing great. Better that you are joining us. Um, I have a question on, I guess this is international politics, and you may be a great person to answer this. Would give me your take at the very least. Um, in many of the speeches that have been taking place, either with Biden or, for the matter, Putin or um, Xi Jinping, they talk about the world is getting, let's say, more dangerous or more calamitous. That basically, in the next several years, we're going to see a world that is basically teetering on the brink um, in regards to a foreign policy standpoint. Uh, give me your take as to why. I mean, I know this is, gets into this whole thing of um, shifting this notion of hegemonic control being ebbed away where you have a multipolar world. But explain to me why that multipolar world is that much more dangerous from the standpoint of the way the world leaders are discussing it. Well, it's a tough question, but I would approach it the following. We are right now in a transition and transitions are always dangerous because you don't know in which direction we'll be heading. There are a lot of uh, uncertainties, as somebody once said, I think it was a U.S.-American um, Politician who once said that there are certain uncertainties and there are the uncertain certainties. <laughs> Rumsfeld. <laughs> Rumsfeld. Yeah, it was Rumsfeld, correct. Yeah. I mean, he didn't say a lot of clever things, but this one is might maybe helpful for the sake of this very conversation. And uh, well, I mean, to put it in a nutshell, yes, we are just in, 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 in times of change, of transition. And uh, I, I don't think that a multipolar order as such uh, is. Uh, is considered as a danger. On the contrary, we have had uh, uh, chapters in, in uh, modern history where multipolar order actually preserved the balance of power for decades and decades. If we just look back into the 19th century, in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, when for 30 years the world was also quite shaken up, at least uh, Europe and Russia were shaken up by, by the events of the French Revolution, uh, the, uh, the Napoleonic expansion and so on. But then uh, once all that was uh, behind us in uh, 1815, 1816, a multipolar order, uh, a restoration of the old absolutist powers came back. And one can say that the 19th century was relatively stable and relatively long. Um, the I think British-born um, political scientist Eric Hobsbawm uh, speaks of the long 19th century, which he says started after the Napoleonic Wars and ended with World War One. So it was uh, a rather stable century. Uh, but now, for sure, we are in a transition. There are tectonic shifts going on. And uh, we are 8 billion people on this planet uh, who have uh, our daily survival struggles sometimes, whether it's for basic commodities such as water and food or more sophisticated commodities such as petrol and gas. 
But uh, here we are. It's uh, it's it's maybe something that uh, certain people who spoke about the end of history, who thought that we will only care about certain ideological approaches or that we only care about uh, identities and pronouns, maybe didn't really take into account. Uh, we, we, we are back to very basic parameters of international relations, which you can't really change, namely geography and demography. You can't change them. They are there and uh, you will have to deal with them. Dr. Kanaiso, I'd like your thoughts on the the U.S. elections, the midterm elections that we um, supposedly wrapped up. Many of them are still ongoing. <laughs> we still don't have the results. As a European yourself and having worked in politics, can you give us the European's perspective of what American politics and the election process looks like to Europeans? I mean, is it is it kind of a joke, kind of a farce? I mean, we there's so much mudslinging, these commercials that go on, these debates that go on and the, and the, the quality of the candidates that the U.S. puts forth. How would you compare and contrast uh, the U.S. election cycle versus, say, what happens in Europe? Well, I think ever since the endless counting of the elections in 1999, 2000, when really for months it was not clear whether uh, George Bush was uh, the winner or his then uh, counterpart, uh, Alan, uh, Gore, I think it was then. So, I mean, that took for months and months and it even needed the Supreme Court's decision. So ever since, then that happened 22 years ago, I think that uh, many European observers have been quite sobered by the, the rather antique uh, archaic system, let's call it like that, the way it's counted. Because, yes, with all my due respect for the um, accomplishments of the U- U.S. American Revolution in 18th century, but these mechanisms were made uh, for times when people really still had to go on horseback uh, to the police station and, and ride back home. But we are in 21st century and maybe some of these mechanisms could be changed. Yes, that's very funny when you put it that way. That is very true because we we over here in the West, you know, we we often mock, let's say, um, the global South. Right. And we say, okay, those elections are illegitimate or it's not free and fair. But at the end of the day, they can get their votes counted the same day. No, no. But but this I think uh, I mean, I I personally I was I was quite struck by what happened back in 1999, 2000. So and I think I'm not the only one who then gave up to understand the mechanisms. And many people have been saying, well, let them update it. At least I think this time, if I'm not mistaken, there were election observers from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OECE. Because usually election observers are sent, as you say, to the global south, to the eastern countries, but they rarely would go to uh, countries like the UK, US, Canada, and and still uh, the, the the counting process is 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 quite uh, astonishing. Yes, how how do the Europeans count the votes? Is it electronic, like here in the states? I served once upon a time. I served on the municipal council of my village in Austria, and I was involved in. In, in these basics of democracy, but it was quite interesting, you know, uh, when you do it in a in a tiny municipality of a few hundred voters, and everybody has to contribute. Yes, we count our two hundred votes, and uh, and we inform uh, the district office, and then by six o'clock the same day, everybody knows uh, which municipality has count has voted which way. I mean, it's it's a small country; it's an eight million country, but. 
if you have a somehow functioning administration on the municipal in a municipality level, it, it works. Dr. Kanizel, thanks for joining us. Um, I wanted to ask your opinion on that. So we know that there's a, an energy crisis seemingly pretty much all the, all around the world, and much of that is being blamed on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But there's a difference between when we're talking about gasoline. Gasoline prices actually have been going down, but what we've seen that diesel prices, and Manila has actually talked about this before, diesel prices, I think we're entering into an era where we, uh, American, we only have about maybe half. Was that what you were saying, Manila? Yeah. Yeah, about half um, of what we actually need or typically have. But diesel particularly has been high over the years, can you talk about diesel prices, um, particularly as it relates to being able to transport things? Because diesel is, when we're talking about transport, is very important. But can you talk about diesel prices over the years? And obviously, this isn't just related to the military operation in Ukraine. This has been a long time coming. I think we touched upon uh, the issue of oil products a little bit uh, in our first talk last week when I came to the refining problem, because uh, as I mentioned the anecdote last week uh, that uh, refineries were not really uh, high on the agenda of, of many U.S. cities and, and states. So I, I refer to the anecdotes uh, which I heard once upon a time, it's already many years ago, that the last big refinery in the U.S. was built when Elvis Presley gives the live concerts. I, I refer to that. And, and it's all about the refining. Uh, when you get, when you receive your vessel of crude oil and you refine it to the products that are needed, well, you need uh, an operative, uh, efficient refining system. And refineries as such were built uh, in, in a more systematic level over the last two decades in, uh, um, in many uh, oil producing countries because they saw when we go back, for instance, to the early 2000s, when they also had tremendous volatility on the on the oil market, which was due then to a bottleneck in the refining segment. Uh, so it, it, there was enough crude on the market, but there were not uh, sufficient uh, refineries to supply the customer with the adequate product, whether it's gasoline, whether it's heating oil, whether it's uh, diesel. And uh, so the, the the problem always bounces back to the to the refinery. Now refineries were built, but not so much in the receiving countries, more in the supplying countries. And uh, given that we have now a manifold crisis, it's uh, uh, it certainly didn't start uh, with uh, with the war in Ukraine as of beginning of this year, but it started with an underinvestment. At least for the uh, for the last six seven years, uh, an underinvestment not only in refining but in uh, in the entire fossil industry due to normative pressure by uh, many governments, by international institutions. Even I've been talking a lot to investment funds uh, over the years, and and I remember how many big investment houses uh, were under strong normative pressure, not only moral, political, or PR pressure, but really normative pressure not to invest into, into fossils. So it's there are many, many reasons why we have this tightened diesel market. But of course, one of the main suppliers of diesel product as such that is shipped uh, to the customer is the Russian Federation. And we have had this 
artificial tightening of the Russian supply due to self-imposed uh, embargoes. And the U.S. was, uh, was yeah, quicker here than the EU. Uh, for the EU, it will enter into fully-fledged force uh, in a few weeks on December the 5th. And uh, yes, there's a there's a tremendous diesel shortage uh, on the EU market, on the US market. And in the US, um, it's all about the truck. It's all about the, the transport business and uh, the truck, uh, the trucking, uh, the truck drivers are the, 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 the essential part of, of transport because much more is transported on, on the road than uh, on rail. In the US and in, in Europe, when you take, for instance, also the situation in France, roughly speaking, I would say half of the individual uh, car drivers uh, refer to, to diesel because it used to be cheaper, it's more efficient. Um, Dr. Kanaizo, a question on Europe. I'm curious, speaking about the um, energy crunch and basically the self-imposed, I should say, energy crunch um, from the standpoint of Europe, are you surprised at the degree to which the European countries went along with this? I mean, initially, one step along the way, they would say, we're not going to do this because we can't afford to do this. And then inevitably, it would eventually expand, meaning initially it becomes, okay, we can't do anything about oil. Then all of a sudden, oil becomes on the list of something that's being sanctioned. We can't do anything about gas. Eventually, gas becomes something that gets sanctioned. Were you shocked at the degree to which Europe jumped on this bandwagon, despite the fact, the harm that it's going to do to Europe? Yes, 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 you're fully right. I mean, I've been following it on a day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour basis uh, when the whole thing started. And I remember very well in the first weeks of March, many EU governments were easy to jump on the sanction against this, uh, banning uh, Russian coal. Right. Uh, and I remember that the German government then was promised, explicitly promised, uh, by the Commission, maybe also by the U.S., but it was all about Brussels, by the European Commission. Uh, everybody gets along uh, with the coal ban, but all the other energies, uh, commodities such as oil, gas, uh, uranium will not be touched. Uh, and that's why, for instance, Germany in the first place um, agreed uh, on the coal ban, um, even though 50% of its uh, coal in import comes from Russia. And they said, yes, we can easily deal with coal, but uh, be aware, we will never be able to deal with oil and gas. And then uh, I have no idea what is what was happening behind, in, so to say, in, in the corridors, talks, and and on the on the phone conversations between uh, certain decision takers. But uh, very quickly, um, due to tremendous pressure uh, by the U.S. by certain EU members, above all Poland, the Baltic states, everybody moved to banning oil, and that was quite a surprise. And uh, we have not yet seen the full repercussion of this oil ban. When it came to gas, there was quite a dissent. Uh, but in between, uh, we have seen the problems with uh, uh, with Nord Stream. The, it's not only a problem, but there was this question about the, the turbine that was uh, uh, for maintenance costs. Yeah, And then, of course, the, the blowing up of Nord Stream, uh, of certain parts of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. So... It's uh, it's interesting to see that uh, uh, despite all warning and self-proclaimed uh, statements, no, no, certainly we will not be able to renounce on oil and gas coming from Russia. But in the end, uh, they went along. And, uh, and now a lot of people are surprised that uh, the prices are high, that... Uh, 
there might not be enough uh, supply for electricity production, but um, maybe everybody will somehow pass through this winter. Uh, this is still possible, but uh, I don't think that things will be over by February or March uh, 2023. Risks to be much more problematic than 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 2022. What is the leverage? I mean, like when I talk to Europeans, I often ask them, like, why are you guys? Is it the war? I mean, is it just the Second World War where it, Europe feels like the U.S. was a major ally to them? Would they just become subservient? Like, meaning, I don't understand the leverage that the U.S. has at their disposal in order to get Europe to knuckle under for something that is clearly hurting them more than it's hurting us. Yeah, but but you see, the pressure really came from within certain EU member states. Uh, there's a there's a profound rift in the room when it comes to topics like Russia, like uh, uh, oil gas imports, and this is Poland. These are the Baltic countries. I think the rift was much more within the European Union. There were not so many phone calls uh, coming from Washington. Uh, I have seen the rift in our council meetings much more as an internal problem. Interesting. Okay, fair enough. And when you get into this thing, now Europe is basically complaining about the Inflation Reduction Act, um, saying that they're going to take us to the WTO. Could you explain that for us? Like, like under normal circumstances, I got to be honest, I don't remember Europe ever really taking issue with anything that we've done in the United States in regards to policy that we've passed domestically ourselves. Why is this one taking such... I don't know. Why, why is Europe taking such umbrage um, at the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, the, this, uh, to, to maybe explain it briefly to our audience, because not everybody is following maybe this legislation. In mid-August, uh, uh, the U.S. Um, uh, passed uh, a law calling the um, anti-inflation uh, law uh, measures. Uh, it's about, I think, about 360 billion subsidy program for renewable energy for sort of reindustrialization of the U.S. And uh, this is definitely blurring uh, market forces. And uh, many EU governments uh, doubt that this is uh, in compliance with the World Trade Organization uh, rules. So um, uh, it's interesting to see the reaction by certain EU governments because that happened in August. Well, in August, nobody is in his office in many EU capitals, unfortunately. Uh, so there was no reaction really by then. And now maybe many, many people have read the legislation, have uh, have really uh, become more aware, fully aware of what's going on. And it's interesting to see uh, the French are really... Uh, um, they're not at all amused. I mean, there's a very strong language used in Paris by the government. Uh, the Germans are are, are less, uh, well, seem less excited. They, they they all want to 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 solve it with through sort a of task force. But um, in parallel, actually, there's there's already a shift of uh, major companies. Um, that like Volkswagen, BASF, also I think. They have already decided over the last few months uh, to move parts of their production to North America for the sake of affordable energy prices. And and and, and what the U.S. here is doing is uh, it's it simply does it in a very clear, blunt way. We want to reindustrialize. We want to do the utmost to be an important energy supplier. Maybe in the future more in the renewable, in the so-called green part. Uh, no idea, but uh, 
the, the World Trade Organization, which we all agreed upon in the late 1990s, it was quite a long, cumbersome way to get there. And it was maybe, in my eyes, the last big piece of real multilateralism that we achieved on a global level. And then it got stuck when uh, we wanted to, to, to continue it. I think in 2002, in the Doha round, we all got stuck. And ever since... We have seen a lot of bilateral trade arrangements, but the World Trade Organization as such uh, has been paralyzed on many levels. And um, uh, we will see to what extent also this problem uh, will cast its shadows uh, to the G20 summit next week in Bali, because I think that there are several people now waking up, <laughs> maybe with a little uh, delay, but they're waking up to the fact that Given that there's not enough affordable energy for the European industry, we are losing the remaining parts. There was not much left. We're losing whatever was left, like the automotive industry, like parts of the petrochemical industry, because there is not any more cheap energy around. And uh, so, um, yes, the U.S. can re-industrialize uh, to the detriment of its uh, EU allies. Uh, th this is happening. And uh, so there's a certain astonishment. Uh, it has not yet arrived um, on, on, on the level of a true public debate, but it's there. Dr. Kneisel, to your point about um, energy leading the the record inflation happening across Europe. All different countries are witnessing different uh, exact prices, but across the euro, uh, the eurozone, we'll call it uh, the the anticipation was a ten point seven percent inflation in in general. I don't know if that's the average, but you know, double digit inflations nonetheless. Is there anybody leading the way with a real plan to help bring down the inflation? I mean, is it is it inextricably uh, part and parcel with the energy prices, or are there other means, at, you know, at their disposal to bring down overall living prices for people in Europe? Well, thank you for this question because unfortunately, there's really it's it's, it's like a stupid script, I may say. Whether it's Mrs. Lagarde, the director of the European Central Bank, whether it's her colleague from the Commission, Mrs. von der Leyen. Whether it's the one or the other finance minister on EU level, they they all blame Russia. They all blame <laughs> Mr. Putin for for the high inflation, which is complete nonsense. Because we have seen an inflation increase over the last year already. It was not galloping double digit, but it went up three, four, five percent here and there, and uh, uh, and this has a lot to do. With money supply as such, we have an overblown, we have an inflated uh, amount, mass of money, money supply number one, the M1 mass, as it's called in macroeconomics. And this is due to the fact that uh, in 2008-9, uh, on the overall level in the Northwestern Hemisphere, from, from Canada to Tokyo, uh, central banks were trying to save banks and to save insurance company, to save first the financial industry, then the economy by and large, through quanti quantitative easing, if I correctly pronounce it, which meant printing, printing money. And uh, uh, many people already warned 
12, 14 years ago against the risk of um, an accumulation that could lead to inflation in the long run. I, I remember uh, in uh, strategic leadership courses speaking about oil price, I pointed that out and I said there's the risk, there's an inflationary pressure risk. And uh, people laughed at me and said, well, we, we won't see any inflation. But uh, this money supply that was artificially increased through this putting on the printing press, the so-called quantitative easing approach, uh, which was like a silver bullet and, and a legit silver bullet solution for all the malaise. It, uh, it's, we have an, a, a, an amount of money supply that is there without being backed by anything, without being backed by, by gold, as it used to be until 1971, which is not anymore backed by an uh, by a sound economic performance uh, because uh, many big banks, insurance companies, later on even other companies during the pandemic were saved by printing money. And uh, so, I, I would say the this this uh, this blunder that happened uh, is uh, also something uh, where <laughs> well ma ma many people did it and. Uh, uh, it's not one scapegoat. It's a money manifold uh, chain of of factors that that led to it. And then, of course, when you add to that um, an increase in uh, energy prices, yes, it adds to that. But uh, it's not uh, the the unique reason. And uh, and it started uh, several years ago. The whole problem. So. If if we are not even able to to call a spade a spade and uh, to to really name the 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 factor of the disease, we I think we we will be helpless in finding the right uh, therapy, the the right means to cure it, because um, the the rising of uh, interest rates. I mean, the interest rates should have been raised a long time ago. We we lived now for nearly 15 years on very low interest rates and sometimes even negative interest rates. And now everybody's lifting interest rate, raising them in order to, to meet the inflationary pressure. But when inflation is 10, 11, 12%, like in Germany these days, uh, it's not sufficient to have 3.6% uh, interest rates. You have to put them up to 10. Wow. But if you put them up to 10, then it becomes very, very tough, and we anyway have a highly in, we have highly indebted uh, companies, household, macroeconomic uh, uh, debts. So um, insolvency, uh, bankruptcy, <laughs> is something that we will see now uh, on, on on many many levels. I mean, the other day I was reading, I, I still follow, of course, in the news in my uh, country of origin, Austria, which is now not. A, very important country in the European uh, overall uh, thing. It's, it's not Germany, it's not France, it's not Italy, but it's a it's an average Central European country. And but what I what struck me, and still I'm not surprised, but it's now a, a, a sad fact that uh, cities, public universities like the Technical University of Vienna, which is a very renowned old institution. Are, are, are ringing the alarm bell and saying we are facing bankruptcy. Wow! I, I, if, if I just may add to that, I've uh, I, I've been teaching for about twenty five years, uh, both in public and in private institutions, and I've seen the one or the other private institution 
uh, go bankrupt because of mismanagement or whatever. And I've always been advising uh, people who ask me for that advice where to study this and that. And I, for many reasons, I often advise them to go to to a public universities. I mean, we still used to have fine public universities in, in many EU countries in contrast to the US. Uh, but uh, And one of the reasons I gave them then 20 years ago, because I said they don't go bankrupt, you know, the University of Vienna will not go bankrupt. It was established in 13th, 14th century. It will be it will be with us. Most probably it will be saved. But I was nevertheless astonished to see um, that these well-established old universities are also ringing the alarm bell. Dr. Gneisel, thank you for this. Always appreciate you joining us. Um, she's former, uh, I'm sorry, former Minister of Foreign Affairs for Austria and Energy Analyst. We're going to come back. We're going to take your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. And we have Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? How's it going, man? Thank y'all for um, taking my call. First, I'd like to say free June on doing science. I got two comments. Do with this comment first. We'll probably just take over uh, Congress, which I think they will, and they start having investigations. I will testify. Hopefully, they're calling me, or I'm gonna get on their nerves until they call me. So, if anything happened to me until that time, that means that's not natural. Something happened to to me, right? So, I'm not suicidal. I'm not crazy. I'm not insane. I'm not none of that. Basically, you didn't step off the cliff. You're pushed. <laughs> if anything happens, you're pushed. You didn't go off willingly. Fair enough. What else, Dreef? Okay, here's the thing with the uh, with the um, elections. People blaming Trump, and I'm glad y'all got it right. It's not Trump. What happened was somebody was I, saw, I was reading the threads. Somebody it, it looked like Mitch McConnell was holding funds on certain candidates that could have won if they was backed. Right. Mitch well, Malik did this yesterday. He basically made the point of saying he moved funds to candidates that were more viable, not necessarily, basically taking it from candidates that weren't as viable to more viable. But yeah. Malik, so yeah. from Blake Masters. It's like, you're here. Yeah, from, <laughs> from Blake, he moved money from Blake Masters, who was already right. trailing um, behind the incumbent Mark Kelly. He moved it to um, the, the J.D. Vance he gave in up. Ohio. He gave up on, on Blake. Yeah, so he moved it. And what happened is after Mitch McConnell poured the money into Ohio and other Republican groups, J.D. Vance came up from behind and he ended up winning. So that's more so what happened. I think what, what happened is, is that Donald Trump came out, attacked Mitch McConnell. <laughs> right. But knowing <laughs> right. that he was not putting any money in his races— and that Mitch McConnell actually was. And so people listened to Donald Trump yeah. and said, oh, it's Mitch McConnell's fault. No, Mitch McConnell moved money to races that were winnable. Whatever you want to think of Mitch, he is shrewd. And I don't think he'll waste money like that. So, yeah. If you looked at the different races, the Libertarian Party sucked up a lot of votes from the Republicans, right? Yep, that, that that's what happened in Georgia. That 2% from the Libertarian, that was the difference between 50% for Warnock or Walker. 
but see, Dreaming it's, 2%. Thank goodness that they have a runoff there because, because the people that did vote for the third party candidate, mm-hmm. at least that proves a point that shows there is an appetite for a third party. Now, if it were, you know, a, a, I know, but still, but it's, the, influential. it's growing. It's influential. It's, gro- it's influential, and that shows that there are people that are interested in a third party. So it's not detrimental, ultimately, because they have a runoff. But in other states where it is, where it's like do or die, then it kills the candidate but one see, way or the other. That's where um, uh, ranked choice voting comes in. Right. I mean, that's why, I lo- what, New Hampshire, or was it Maine? Was it Maine or New Hampshire? I think it was Maine, where the, they, the candidates tried to take it off the ballot. The right. public I mean, put it back this. on. Yeah. I mean, they were like, no, we really do want this. Oh, New York was doing it because oh, Mark— Oh, that's right, Mark, 44 pages. Yes, 44 pages, yeah. Mark told us. Yeah, they had to read 44 pages, and Mark was Good like, how, Mark. It was like how, that's why society is dying now, because they can't read those 44 pages. <laughs> um, look, the ranked choice voting thing, I think, is a fair point. I mean, look, I should not be punished. If, if Hillary Clinton is running against Trump and Jill Stein, and then there's, I forget, let's say, like, Gary Johnson or something like that, if I don't like— Either of those candidates and I want to pick Jill Stein, why should I be punished for picking Jill Stein if indeed I can have a second choice? Now, many Democrats, I mean, because all things being equal, you have this esoteric other. It's like, yes, I would vote for the third party candidate if I thought other people would vote for the third party candidate, in which case you get this kind of an incentive to go to the two party candidates who you may actually greatly dislike. Um, so, yeah, I, I am one of those people who I agree with Mark on the ranked choice voting stuff. Tariq, please, I'm sorry. Continue. Another thing, what people mix and the Republicans, what they should have done for the past two years, they should have helped out the Green Party getting on those ballots because the Green Party was the ones taking votes. From Democrats. <laughs> right, right. The Republicans are stupid. They dropped the ball on that one. They should have paid attention because if you look at those races, only one party was affected by votes being bleed off. That was the uh, Republican Party votes going to the to the libertarians, not the other way around with the Green Party, with the Democrats going to the Green Party, because the Democrats kept the Green Party off those unlesses. Matthew Ho, North Carolina. And by the way, Democrats did that to Republicans, right? I mean, Democrats were putting money into candidates who they thought were bogus candidates. Right. In order weak, to get the, weak candidates yeah. in order to, to promote yeah. the weak candidate like, up. Get that weak guy up there so I can run against that weak so guy. So I can run over him. Yeah. Yeah. In, right. Not even know. run against him. I just want to run over him. Um, so, yeah, Tarif, I mean, to your point. It is politics. You could say it's, I don't know, slightly sleazy politics, but it's what Democrats were doing. Why oh, not? Yeah. Thank you for that, Tarif. Next caller, we got Brave down in the ATL. Hey, Brave. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, how trash is it? How trash is Warnock that he has to do a runoff with? Uh... But I know Herschel Walker, right? I know, right? <laughs> like, man. But to be fair, it is Georgia, right? I mean, did we, be, did we, when Warnock won that, what is it, Warnock and Asif, right? Mm-hmm. When they won that, did we really think that they were going to be able to keep that seat in Georgia? I mean, did you think they were going to be able to keep that? I mean, because no, no. keeping, yeah, well, the, well, it was going to well, be a tough yeah, race either way. What, what I thought was is that Herschel Walker was such a flawed, like probably the most flawed candidate yeah. that we had. Um, <laughs> and that he was, and his his performances around the state of Georgia have not been great. His yeah. interviews have not been great. He was a horrible—to me, I thought that he was a horrible candidate, but I agree with Brave. How terrible is Warnock that he lost against—well, not that he lost, that he's going into a runoff with Herschel Walker. But is it a Georgia issue? Like, meaning if if I'm running in a deep red state and I'm a Democrat, 
I'm going to struggle out of the way. Right. I feel like it's either way. Yeah. I, I think it, it, if if Republicans had chosen someone like a Kelvin King or another Republican candidate, it wouldn't have been as close, as competitive with Warnock. But the fact, even you can add the same thing with Oz. Oz may have been a flawed candidate. He may have been a carpetbagger. But look how he closed the gap. He yeah. came within yeah. like one percent. I mean, be fair. Fetterman had a stroke. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, <laughs> I mean yes. like that debate performance was like, oh, yeah. they, they asked him about the natural gas or the, the fracking, fracking thing, and he's like, "Why did you change your position on fracking? Like, I don't I'm against like fracking. fracking. I like fracking. I'm against fracking. I'm against, fracking. I'm against it. No, I'm against I, fracking. I like it. Yeah, it was the weirdest. <laughs> it was the weirdest response ever. And it's like you almost feel bad, like even watching the debate performance. It's like, am I, you know? It was Being painful. an ableist, just watching this? It was That's a dumb made-up word, an ableist. I know. But like, I, it's just, it I just hated sounds... that reporter, not a reporter, she's some kind of writer for, I right. forget who. But... It's as made up as Latinx. Yeah. It's just made yeah. up. Yeah. Just... And they asked the, Latin, um, the Hispanic community, it was like, we don't like this word. Yes, the Hispanic yeah. community they didn't even like the word. like yeah. it. And Democrats so... use it all the time. But we're yeah. sorry, Brave, go ahead. Yeah, Brave, sorry. <laughs> I have fun, man. I, I was just, I mean, well, you guys, uh, make the point that his um, interviews and his uh, debate performance was horrible. I-, I would argue that his conversation is probably generally horrible. Like that guy, I don't think he can carry conversation. Oh, you're talking about Fetterman? No, Walker. Oh, Walker. Horse Walker, Walker, too. Well, hey, you know what? He played football a long time. Played football. He got a lot of brain damage from, you know, he took <laughs> he a, lot a lot of hits. He got a lot of hits. I mean, by guy. the way, took a lot of hits. there were dead men elected. That, too. In Connecticut? I thought it was Pennsylvania. Was it Pennsylvania? Yep. I could There's be wrong. And some some mayoral races, like the somebody, I forget which city, uh-huh. but a mayoral candidate, she, she I, I forget if it's she or he, but they died at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on election day really? in a car wreck. And they won. At the very least, Fetterman can say, I'm still here. I know. <laughs> nothing, nothing else. I'm breathing. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm <laughs> right. I'm breathing. I'm here. No, I'm, I'm talking. Am I talking? Am I talking? By the way, I met him once. I went to a Sanders um, thing in Temple University. This was Sanders was running. And Fetterman was out there shaking hands with the crowd and everything else. I even think I have one. He's a massive guy. He's huge. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Looks huge. like Lurch. Yeah, a little bit. Big he, dude. He's huge. But Bray, I'm sorry, man. Finish it. <laughs> no worries, man. Uh, so two things real quick. Jokingly, but, but partially serious. Okay, so um, the Arizona candidate. Or Kerry Lake. Uh, Lake. Put Lake and Tulsi on the ticket uh, for president and... Uh, and I, I guarantee you that they will wash the Democratic Party, right? I, I, they will wash. You think so? I don't. I'm not buying that one. But go ahead, Brie. Let point. me tell you something. And this is just a misogynist point, but whatever. Every dude will run out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You know, She's a pretty lady. Brave has it. a point. We, I get it. Really? I, I, I do think, and I don't think it's just a, a male thing. I think... W- we like att- attractive people. Of course, of course. Tend to do better it, in life, right? Agreed. Whether it's in a job life. or so we tend, and I kind of agree with. I mean, having an, att- a, an attractive a, an, woman. A, well, I'll 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 add first having a smart, intelligent. Oh yeah, you won't put those adjectives right. first. <laughs> you know but I'm, very but also attractive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny about that? I'm not Foxes Jesse Waters. I, I, I'm, oh I was God, laughing at this. It says um, basically they're making the argument that Democrats got women under forty, are captured by Democrats. It says so we need to get ladies married, and it's time to fall in love and just settle down. Guys, go put a ring on it. His his argument I'm is not basically hate on that well, he's and like, I don't even like Jesse Waters. Unmarried he's, uh, women, thirty one percent Republicans, sixty eight percent Democrats. Meaning yes. unmarried women, sixty eight percent. His point is 
Go put a ring on it. Republicans <laughs> need turn the Republicans. Yeah, turn the Republicans. Put a ring on it. Because it's married men. 39% yeah, go, Democrat, go ahead, 59% Republican. I'm, I'm just saying, it would be the, uh, you could basically call it the Fox News, um, the, 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 the Fox News uh, format, right? Uh, to attract the women that are smart. My wife, my wife is beautiful. My wife is beautiful. We were watching um, the elections. We were watching all the coverage. And she just kept saying how attractive Carrie Lake was. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is funny. Look, it doesn't hurt, right? I'm saying no. I have no shade. No shade on, on saying, you know, she happens to be smart, politician, ex-newswoman. Yeah. She's attractive. Like, yeah. no shade on that. She ability to communicate. Got no attractive. shade on that. No Win-win. shade for that. Brave, thank you, my man. Was it Jesse Waters? Said, go put a ring on it. If you want Republicans to win, go put a Jesse ring on it. Jesse Waters <laughs> is the last person to be talking about marriage and fidelity. He cheated on his pregnant wife and made another, made two babies with another lady. Jesse Waters? Yes. Wow, really? He's the know that. last scumbag to be talking about fidelity and marriage. So shut up, I Jesse. Well, he's just saying it because he wants Republicans. That's all. <laughs> no, he's saying about fidelity. He just to put a ring on it. But it's just like him being the last person to yeah. talk about putting rings on anybody because he had twins out of wedlock or maybe it's the other way around but oh wow yeah thank yeah. you manila <laughs> telling telling the truth all right you guys are listening to fault lines my name is jamal thomas manila sham malik abdul back in a moment fault lines fault lines Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your contact list for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the marriage watcher, the fixin' of Veritas. That's her, man. The thriller in Manila, <laughs> Chad. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chad. We're joined with Malik Abdul, and yeah, she is the marriage watcher. Yeah. She is telling okay, us some let, stuff. Let us, let's get Jamaral up to speed. Yeah, because some of the stuff I didn't know. Jamaral just found out that Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough are married. I did not know that. Yes, they got, <laughs> I, it must in 2015 Many years ago. It's been yeah. several years. Yeah. And you said he was married. Joe was married. And Mika was a divorcee. Yeah, when they were on the show together, yeah. when they started the show together, Joe was still married. Correct. Mika, I don't... Was divorced. Was uh-huh. divorced. She was a divorcee. Oh, and she then was... as and so, the show progressed, yes. they... I something guess took like place. something happened, and then and they so end up married. If you wonder why Joe Scarborough suddenly went left, right. it's because Mika put it down on him. <laughs> Whoa! Mika laying it down like Mika that. Mika put it down on Joe, took him away from his wife, and turned him lefty. Whew! Yeah. So I didn't know Mika Woo. had it like that, but go ahead, Brzezinski. I mean, she's a Brzezinski. I, mean, I guess you saw that plan. What is that? Um, drag Russia into his own civil war. I mean, she, she Brzezinski. I don't know what else to say. She's a Brzezinski. That's why neither of these men, Jesse Waters or Joe Scarborough, have a I leg to stand on when that. they're talking about <laughs> marriage or fidelity or being true to your values. Yeah. Neither of you have room to talk. Like, back your stuff up. They've been true to their values, all right? It's just Ooh. different values. Different value <laughs> set. <laughs> right. And, right. But, yeah. Yeah, that's... She put it down. I did not know that. So, yeah. That's... So, yeah, if people, you know, criticize Joe for 
turning on his party. Yeah. She Mika. Put, Mika put it down. Mika. Like the wow. party didn't put it down like Mika did. So <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, JT getting up to speed. Wow, yeah, yeah like, man, you got me up to speed on that one. I did not know that. Yeah, it's been several years, and people had assumed that for a long time. That Well, I thought they were messing around. I wasn't sure. Like, just fooling around? Yeah, because, you know, it's like when you see two people, it's like, okay, that's There's a man a and a woman. Chemistry. There's a chemistry there. Something's going well, on. she's it's left, that. he's right. Yeah. And, you know, people assumed. Yeah. And they were right. Come to find out. The assumptions the were right. The assumptions were true. Yeah. Good to know. And, yeah, now they're official, and... As they say, he made her an honest woman. But, well, well no, it started out yeah. not so honest. <laughs> not so much. I mean, I guess the question, man, that's why women, I mean, that's why exes or wives. Ex-wives? Get a little dicey about shows like that. Like when you say, oh. let's say like, um, like Brad Pitt, and he's with a, I don't know, a female actress. You would imagine if you're his wife, you have to be thinking to yourself. All right, what's well, going on in this? Let, let me give you, so everybody knows that, you know, I grew up, in L.A., mm-hmm. hung out with the Hollywood crowd growing up. I don't know how. I just kind of stumbled into these groups, yep. right? I'll give you a little intel that I knew from way back when. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm not going to reveal my sources because right. these people still work in the industry. Oh, can't name names. Okay. I'm not going to name names. However, these are people that worked very closely on the set of Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brad Pitt and Angelina. Right. And back then, Brad Pitt was still married yes. to Jennifer Aniston. But the people that I knew would tell me about the shenanigans after the cameras stopped rolling and what Angelina would do to Brad and in front of people, too. Uh The the level of, I'll call it, because this is a family-friendly show. I'll call it flirtation. Yeah. But it was a very rated X flirtation. Oh, (laughs) Oh, jeez. That involved, you know, you talk about Trump grabbing her in the whatever well she Angelina flipped the script uh huh oh and there uh huh are you following and there's some weird face face licking there was all kinds of face lickings and weird and so my friends told me you just watch she's gonna break up Brad and Jen and that's what happened and ultimately that's what happened wow and then they had all these kids together so (laughs) and then they broke up but it started out from that so the sometimes industry murmurings are very, I mean, not sometimes, oftentimes. Wives, watch your husbands. Very true. Watch your husbands Especially if you're in the Especially in Hollywood. Yeah, in Especially in Hollywood. All right, let's head over to the big story of the day is that we still don't know anything about elections. Is it is it Republicans leading the Senate? Democrats? We don't know. Uh, right now, the Senate race has Republicans up by one seat, 49 versus 48 by Dems. The House of Representatives, 209 seats Republican, Democrats, 191. So races are still being counted 48 hours later. No real answer. Uh, We'll stick with domestic news here. The red wave pundits uh, that they predicted that was going to happen obviously didn't happen. It was kind of a trickle, maybe a little bit of a sprinkle. President Biden underscored that during a Wednesday address on the incoming results of the highly anticipated midterms. He said, quote, while the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, it didn't happen as he was talking to reporters. And he said that this marks a good day for democracy. Notice he didn't say Democrats. He said democracy. He said, good day for democracy. 
and a good day for America. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but the American people have spoken and proven democracy is who we are. And also, the Biden administration is planning to release later on Wednesday a transcript from a 2004 interview that former President George W. Bush and then-VP Dick Cheney gave to a bipartisan government commission investigating the 9-11 terrorist attacks. According to U.S. media, the interview with the commission took place in April of 2004 in the Oval Office and included a discussion of intelligence warnings received prior to the attacks, according to the Wall Street Journal, citing a copy of the document and a person familiar with the matter. So during the interview, President Bush acknowledged that Air Force One had poor communications when he's on the plane. And after the attacks unfolded, he asserted that he authorized Dick Cheney to shoot down any unresponsive commercial commercial airliners, according to the report. Now, just think about that for a minute. Commercial airliners. So if airplanes didn't immediately get grounded, if they were up in the air, they could have been shot down by their own government, by the U.S. government. So let that sink in. George Bush gave the green light to Dick Cheney, the guy that shot his friend in the face. And President Biden noted during a Wednesday address on the midterm election results that billionaire Elon Musk needed to be, quote, looked at when asked whether the entrepreneur was a threat to U.S. national security. The reporter Jenny Leonard from Bloomberg said, Mr. President, do you think Elon Musk is a threat to U.S. national security? And should the U.S., with all the tools you have, investigate his joint acquisition of Twitter with foreign governments, which include the Saudis. So Biden laughs and says, I think that Elon Musk's cooperation and or technical relationships with other countries is worthy of being looked at. Whether or not he is doing anything inappropriate, I'm not suggesting that, but it warrants being looked at. Hmm. Then to international news, the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, has agreed to the suggestion of Sergei Sorovikin, the Russian army general appointed commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine to withdraw troops from parts of Russia's Kherson region to the left bank of the Dnieper River. The decision was made as Sorovikin delivered a report to Shoigu on the course of the special military operation. General Sorovikin told the defense minister that the establishment of defenses along the left bank of the Dnieper River should, would be the most rational option in the current circumstances. Now, he warned that should the Kiev regime proceed with its plans to destroy the Kashovskaya hydroelectric plant, and damn, that it could lead to disastrous consequences. Now, he stressed yet again that Kiev's missile strikes on the dam have been incessant, and on September 26, one of those spillway shutters was actually hit and damaged. Then the Biden administration prodded Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky 
to rethink his stance on talks with Russia, according to U.S. media citing White House insiders. They say the, we'll call it nudging, was ostensibly done to appease both Democrats and Republicans who have argued the need for more of a diplomatic, diplomatic stance regarding the conflagration in Ukraine, particularly ahead of the midterm elections that we just had. Now, the report rushes to rule out any speculation that U.S. officials directly instructed Zelensky and his aides to alter their position. However, it does hint that Kiev was told to display readiness for talks in order to be seen as embracing the moral high ground in the eyes of the coalition Western countries that have, you know, poured tons of money and weapons into the country supporting the Ukraine regime. Quote, that doesn't mean they need to go to the negotiating table right now. We don't even think right now is the right time based on what Russia is doing. But they must show a willingness to resolve the conflict because no one wants this conflict to end more than Ukraine, says an unnamed White House official. Then the 1,400 megawatt Okarsham 3, which is operated by OKG and is vital to power supplies in southern Sweden, shut down completely during daytime operations on Wednesday, November 9, after earlier running at reduced capacity. The closure instantly disconnected the turbine from the power grid. Now, the halting of Sweden's largest energy producer makes an already strained supply situation even worse, though demand at present has been tempered by mild weather, immediately sending day-ahead prices for southern Sweden going up 13%. Then Iran has developed the first national hypersonic ballistic missile, according to the commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Aerospace Force, Amir Ali Hajizadeh, speaking on Thursday, quote, this new missile will pass all missile defense verification systems and I don't think there will be technologies capable of resisting it for decades. Ali, excuse me, Haji Zadeh was quoted as saying by Iranian media. Then French President Emmanuel Macron announced on Wednesday that Operation Barkhane was officially over. The eight-year counterterrorism war has been fought across five nations in Africa's Sahel region. Quote, I have decided in coordination with our partners to make official the end of the Barkhan operation, Macron said in a speech on the French helicopter carrier Demude in Toulon on Wednesday. Then this day in history, back in 1885, German engineer, one Gottlieb Daimler, you may think of that name and say, wait a minute, Daimler Chrysler. Yes, that's what it is. Gottlieb Daimler unveils the world's first motorcycle. Only in 1885? It's a bicycle with a motor. <laughs> but okay. Back in 1918, Western Union Cable Office in North Sydney, Nova Scotia, receives a top secret coded message from Europe stating that on November 11, 1918, all fighting would cease on land, sea, and in the air. Ooh, mysterious. Then as we recall... In 1989, we know that the wall uh, in Berlin 
was shuttered officially yesterday, Germans began demolishing the wall in Berlin today in 1989. All right, that'll do it for your headlines this Thursday, November 10. You're listening to Fault Lines. Alrighty, so let's do this. We're still going to go with the election coverage because the election results haven't necessarily been called yet. Democrats have been reading um, over the break. They seem pretty optimistic. They still may have a potential for taking the House or, for that matter, holding the Senate. Not sure yet. Um, McCarthy is getting his gavel ready. Nancy Pelosi, I would imagine, is getting rid of her gavel or about to give her gavel up. But look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We would try to get to you at 9.45 if the opportunity presents. But let's do this. Let's go to our guests. We have the one and only Ed Martin. Ed Martin is... President of the Schlafly Eagles and a New York Times bestselling author. He's also an attorney. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. For whatever reason, that wasn't in the um, script. But look, Ed, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, thank you. Although I will tell you, and I know Manila was your... Uh, children, you know, um, we've got flu going through our house. Oh, no. It's taking everybody down a little bit. I, I, I'm, I'm the uh, last man standing. Uh, last, last man standing, although I've got something. But anyway, we're doing barely, <laughs> barely standing. Oh, I hate that. That That's always so inopportune whenever that takes place. But thank you for joining us nonetheless, despite the headwinds. And I want to get your take on the election results that we know of up to this point. We didn't get the red wave. I think Manila called it a red miss um, or red tinkle or something yeah, to that effect. The sprinkle, the mist. Yeah, sprinkle the like mist. It's like when you go to a theme park and, you know, it's hot and they have this little sprayers. Yeah, it just hits you a little bit. It's just, just a little brisk water. Um, give me a take as to why. Why do you think it turned out like this? Why do you think it wasn't as, um, let's say, voluminous in the way that people were basically talking about it? Even, look, even us. I even thought. I the Republicans be, were going to be yeah, much stronger. more resounding. Yeah. Why? Why wasn't as resounding as we were thinking? I, I agree, too. I, look, I was uh, I'm, I kind of my own judgment was it was all the fundamentals were in the direction, you know, had, uh, that, that the president was unpopular relatively. The economy was bad relatively. Um, and uh, so I, I look, I think there's a couple of things going on. One is I think we are sort of divided into teams and there are places where the, the team game is just what's going to happen. That doesn't, it doesn't explain a place like Pennsylvania. It felt like you had a two candidates where the contrast was going to be big enough. So, but in general, I think we're sort of divided and, and um, there's a couple of things practically that we're seeing now. It looks like the Democrats were more strategic in spending their ma- massive amount of money on races and uh, the Republicans were not as strategic. I think that seems to be there's some criticism of how, uh, you know, I think the Republicans thought they had the wind at their back and they sort of were coasting. So, but I, I look, I think it's, um, 
They're inside the numbers now on some exit polls. It looks like it is true that, um, you know, the, the Biden effort to sort of scare voters, bring the fear factor up, helped get turnout amongst Democrats that may have been higher than they would have normally done. I think that's true. I think there was some younger people, it looks like, who came out based on the abortion issue, wanted, you know, want abortion rights. It looks like there's some information, some uh, data that backs that up. But I, I'm really confounded by it, to be honest. I, I, I thought, I just thought if you know politics, you sort of expect um, that with all those fundamentals going the run one way, it would go. So, uh, you know, again, we are where we are. We still are not, it's not clear how it resolves for the Senate, but it looks like the uh, House will be, you know, kind of narrowly Republican. Uh, I did, I did smile. Tom Massey, Thomas Massey, the congressman from Kentucky, said the other day, he said, um, I like a very closely divided, you know, hopefully only by one vote. Then the Massey caucus is in charge. Kind of the corollary of of, uh, of Joe Manchin in the Senate had such influence. So we'll see. It's going to be interesting. And and now we're off into the already Joe Biden is talking about how he can block Trump from running. I don't even understand what he meant, but that's getting a lot of attention right now. So we'll see. I, Ed, it, it's it's Malik here. I think one of the things that is worth discussing now, we know that polls, we, we've talked about polls forever, polls. And I compare it to what was happening in 2016. Polls in 2016 were suggesting that Hillary Clinton was going to win. The momentum was behind Hillary Clinton winning. We woke up, realized the next day after the election, Donald Trump won. And so those polls were definitely off. So it isn't if polls are in exact science. And I think part of the challenge, even with the red wave discussion, is something that I never did myself because I didn't necessarily believe it. What people should understand about this is that these are projections. So a lot of what we were talking about is what places like the political report said that would have been, you know, um, you know, races that were closer or more competitive races. But as far as Donald Trump is concerned, I understand that, you know, a lot of people are talking about and kind of it's like, oh, well, you know, Donald Trump had a bad night. As I was saying, the problem with Donald Trump is that Donald Trump endorsed well over a hundred candidates in the primary season. He's at this point, I think maybe lost about 15 or so of that hundred plus seats. There's another layer to the discussion of Donald Trump losing. What people don't realize, so when we talk about Donald Trump's loss, it's really um, more so limited to what's happening at the federal level. Donald Trump endorsed candidates at the state. He endorsed candidates for secretary of state, governor, senator, congressman. So he went down the entire ballot endorsing people. So when people, when we're talking about his losses, it doesn't just include those for Congress or Senator. It also includes governor seats, attorney general seats, secretary of state seats. So all of this is folded into this Trump loss thing. But I think what Republicans need to learn from this, first of all, look at the example of Florida, Georgia, Texas, and many other states with Republicans, well, the Republican candidate, if you look at what Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio did down there in Florida, their early vote numbers were incredible. And so what the Republican Party needs to do after this is push this nonsense about early voting. We don't like 
ballot boxes and all of this type of stuff. They need to push that to the side because we're seeing in places like Georgia and Florida and others that Republicans who push the early vote and get their people out to the polls, in addition to ballot boxes, they can win and they can win big. Yeah, look, I mean, I think a couple things in there. One is um, your point on Trump uh, endorsing, you know, over 100, uh, whatever the number is, 150. Uh, it, there's a point where, as, as someone pointed out, it's not really much of an endorsement if you say, I like so-and-so, and you're not doing more than that, right? And, 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 you know, and so there's places where Trump did spend some of his PAC money and helped some candidates and all. Uh, I think he's getting criticized because people think, Dr. Oz was his candidate and, and Herschel Walker was his candidate and that they underperformed. I, I look, I just don't, I don't buy that. I, I just think that the, the dynamics in those places, there's lots of ways to be critical. Would Dave McCormick in Pennsylvania have done better than Oz? I think his people would say yes, but you just don't know that. So I, I, I uh, but as to look, I, I just rejected it was a bad day for Trump. That's a narrative by the Republicans, the establishment, Carl Rove types and others that want Trump to go away and also by the media, because they, they hate this guy. They just hate him. If you're Trump, remember, this guy's a master. At, you, you don't have to like it, but I'm just saying he's a master at getting attention. He's a master. He's an energy monster. And you give him negative energy, and he, he doesn't care. It's just energy to him. He just, he just like Pac-Man. He just kind of up and keeps going. So, you know, we're all talking about him. We're all talking about – and look, what, what I think we can predict safely – is in 2024, the country will be sharply divided and the race will be decided by a handful of states, right? And so if you're Trump, you're saying, don't tell me Ron DeSantis would be better at this because Ron DeSantis, uh, in November of 2024, the, the election will be decided in a handful of states. There's no such thing in America right now as a runaway you know, uh, success. It's just going to be down to three or four or five states. And it's kind of interesting. It's Florida looks like it's no longer a swing state. Iowa, totally Republican. So some of these states that used to be a little bit more, uh, you know, purple, they are not. And so you're down to literally, I think you're down to Pennsylvania, Michigan, and maybe Arizona for the presidential uh, election. And so now to your point, I, I disagree with you pretty strongly. I think we ought to try to, to, to create a movement to have an election day. And have one day and have very narrow uh, absentee balloting rules. And just because I, I think it's insane that America is going through this process. Look at Arizona right now. We're, we're watching like I don't even understand the language of it. There's some sort of like there's some phrase like voter drops or something they're going to drop. And we don't even know who's winning these races three days later. I mean, th this is not normal. Uh, Brazil is a big country counted their votes within a couple hours, right? A couple of minutes. <laughs> like at 9 o'clock, those votes were like pretty much out. Yeah, it was pretty much immediate. But but they use electronic voting. And by, by, well, by the way, on that, that was a close race too, Bolsonaro versus... Yeah. So in other words, it wasn't a blowout. They actually had to count the votes. So I, I just think we ought to get back to uh, an election day. Go ahead. Well, look, I don't think we necessarily need an election day. I think we just need to change the rules around the way we do elections. Meaning, it, just because... Look, you can have your early voting. You can have your absentee voting. You have all that stuff. And But I don't believe for one moment that you can't necessarily come up with a system where that stuff can be counted quickly. I mean, does right. that mean just nationalizing or standardizing the way we do elections across the country? Would you agree with that one? 
Well, I, look, I ran the election board in in, in St. Louis, um, so I got a need. I got really an experience of this, and it's um, it is there's there's a couple problems with elections. One is it's a complex system. You have to get a system that works, and you don't get to practice except once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's kind of a hard thing. Um, but I, I don't I don't want to nationalize it. I know that I don't want the government, the federal government, to run it. But I I don't think that there's any reason we couldn't uh, get the the um, the, the, get the vote on the day of and get the results. I, there's not, it's what happens when you create a system that's so complex. And again, St. Louis is what I know best. Since I left there, we now have uh, early voting in these stations all over the city. Well, so now you've got two weeks of the same problem of bringing in from precincts all the votes, right? Now you're doing it by computer and all. It just becomes more, I think you actually go simple and say, hey, on election day, come vote. If you can't vote on election day for some reason, come in and tell us, and then we'll see. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I just I, I think we're we're trying to make it complex um, in order to in order to increase access. We're making it too complex, and frankly, we're getting to the point where people just don't trust the system. And you know who doesn't trust the system the most is lower income and lower. Uh, educated people that they're like, oh, why would I bother? It doesn't matter what I do. That's a crappy system. That's a that's a system that's really designed and managed by the elites to control their you know their access and and power. And I yeah, and I think you're probably referring to voter apathy. And typically in right. those lower income groups across the across the board, there's a lot of voter apathy right. there. What I do but, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, but but I I'll say if you if you're it, I, the reason that I don't necessarily buy the either, you know, election on one day or we should, it's because of Florida. Florida had expanded ballot boxes, absentee ballots. This is after the law, the legislation that Ron DeSantis signed around Florida election laws, where they placed certain limitations on where ballot boxes and things like that were placed. But ballot boxes was a huge part of the win. Absentee ballots were a huge part of the win. In 2020, Donald Trump voted by absentee (laughs) ballot. So there is a benefit to doing that. If my mother, if my mother my mother lives in Mississippi. I would love for my mother, if she didn't want to go into a poll, she should be able to request an absentee ballot so she doesn't have to go into the polls. Florida counted 7 million votes, which included absentee ballots, ballot boxes, and by the end of the day, within hours in Florida, we knew what the we knew what the outcome no. was, which is very Hold different on. than what we're seeing in places like I Arizona think, and I Nevada. Think all of you guys are neglecting the apathy from people like me who are third party people, and there's so much. I mean, the 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 countdown in Georgia shows. I mean, we're focused there because they have the yeah. they have the runoff coming up, um, but. There are so many people like me. I still went and voted, but there's still there's so much apathy for elections because of the process of how we get people on the ballot to begin with. Right there. Our ballots are bogus to begin with because the names that are on there are not reflective of real choice in what is supposed to be a democracy. So for me, of course, yeah, like I'm I'm not totally apathetic, but I'm I'm fed up with the names that we keep seeing on these ballots because it's not reflecting the actual choices that Americans want. So if Hence, people are ranks choice if people are right apathetic, there. that is why is because you're like, okay, I can choose a, 
a crap sandwich or a crap soup today. And by the way, that's really all I have on the menu. And I, to back up Manila's point, I don't think that's specifically related to the electoral process. Mm -hmm. I think that's how much money gets put into politics, whether your choices are on the ballot box. Meaning, when you see Donald Trump and Joe Biden and you look at the exit polls, neither one is liked. Like neither one, what, it was like nobody the, likes the lesser anybody. Of two nobody, evils. yeah, it was the lesser of two evils. And you get into a process where you're continuously voting for the lesser of two evils. Yeah, people don't get excited about the voting process. What half of the country My don't not vote? Not going to matter anyway, right? And, and it's, it's no one part. I want. What ninety percent of the races are won by the side with the most cash? Right. The point then, is, it's just there's nobody I want. Exactly. And a lot of people are like me, and a lot of people think to themselves, nobody I want. It doesn't matter who I vote for. Like, doesn't I would, matter. I would rather starve than eat a crap sandwich or eat crap soup. So, Ed, what do you think? I'm, so, well, I'm not trying to figure out what crap. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> the risk of, at the risk of uh, some sort of cultural appropriation. I don't know what that is. But anyway, <laughs> I think, you, you know, let me say this. It'll help. I believe that both parties, I don't think that Democrats are the only one that cheat on elections. I think Republicans do, too. And so when you tell me that, oh, wow, DeSantis had really good laws and they were able to use Dropbox and all those things, my comeback is that that system is not trustworthy enough for me, whether it's run by DeSantis or it's run by, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom. I, I don't think those are good systems. I don't think they're secure enough. And the fact is, I think that I don't think that I think the reason why we haven't seen a significant reform in our elections, I, I don't think we have seen that, is because both parties like it. That was my argument. Yeah. If, if, I mean, if you didn't like it, you change it, right? Right. They like it. Well, no, they like Exactly. Because if you say to a Republican, uh, by the way, the elections are really corrupt. They say, well, how can it be corrupt? I just won. I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> so or, or they're cheating themselves. So I I think that part of it is really daunting. Uh, I, now, back to your thing about who's on the ballot and all that stuff. I look, I just think uh, our system is, you know, imperfect. But it's better than anywhere else in the world, in my opinion. And so you, you say, you know, you get two bad choices. Well, OK, but, um, you know, you can go to imagine. I, I don't think Americans I, I think the American system is more stable and more helpful for living than, say, Italy, where, you know, the likelihood that that government falls in the next six to 12 months is about 100 percent. Because the you know parliamentary parliamentary system you know so if you have three four five six parties it it ends up in that kind of mess which would mean if you had three if, if in America we had ten parties Manila you'd have a party you'd say that's my party they actually embrace what I do but that system would be less stable I think and by the way I'm not and I'm not um, arguing that the two party system is not corrupt. It is corrupt. It's really a uniparty system and that's a problem. But but I'm just talking about electorally. I, well, Ed Ed. Back back in the old days, before photography, when they would just draw the politicians, we had like 16 different parties. Well, I know, but that's nice, but we don't now. I mean, we, we have a, the system we have now is what we have now. And they're really, when you had 16 different parties, you didn't have, you still really had two. I mean, you didn't, you had lots of other names on there, but it was not. Well, I mean, the point is you, you back then they would have to build coalitions and they, everybody had a little bit of a say is my point, was because you had to build a coalition. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I hate to use Israel as an example because they've just had like their 500th election in <laughs> right, three <five> years. years. <laughs> right, but, but still, the point is the way they have it set up is that they have to, to you know, make friends with other people that maybe you have some overlap with. Maybe, so that way your party gets a little bit of a say, that party gets a little bit of a say. And ultimately, yeah, I mean, in Israel, it's, how far right are the right. are the parties? But still, the idea is 
a, each party has, there are multiple parties, right? And everybody has a little bit of a say. They have a little bit of skin in the game. They, everybody has a little bit of a, you know, a little dog in that fight. Yeah, I mean, I, we can. This is a longer discussion on the on the what you think works the best. But but uh, let me let me shift to something else about what I think is the danger in America. It is the dominance of big tech and big media pushing sure. messaging on the people. I mean, I, that's the thing. That's the thing that I, I really you keep watching this and kind of he's stunned into the uh, in, in seeing it. And and that's where I think you know Biden maybe um, knew how to use the system in front of him better than others had. I mean, if you're Biden, by the way, if you're Biden and somebody comes in the Oval Office and says, hey, we don't think you should run again for re-election, he, he's going to say, what are you talking about? I just outperformed Clinton and Obama on the midterm. I mean, I just did that. And I think he has the benefit. He's not better. He's not a better politician. Obviously, He's not smarter. He has the benefit of the narrative machine, which took his clear and present danger, language, democracy on the ballot, and utilized it as a get out the vote for his side, so that you know we'll see if the numbers hold. I haven't seen enough uh, of the exit polls and all that, but but that that they were he was effective at that, and that that's what's most daunting to me is the power of and it's so clearly now big media, big tech, and big government. You know whether it's it's you know whether it always was and and we were naive and didn't know, but now it's very clear it's government. You know the government is is uh, is managing and 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 dictating and influencing the messaging for the country. And that part of it is, it's not persuasive in itself. It's persuasive because they're really good at brainwashing TV. It's the bully pulpit. I mean, I, I every president I pretty much had the bully pulpit. I think everybody agrees with that, though. Yeah. The, the, what, what Ed is saying is the collusion between, between media and media, government. That I agree Social with. media, and at this point, it's Biden because he's who's yeah. in the Oval Office. But, I mean, I think having worked in media for, you know, the better part of 20 years, I definitely can see the influence of social yes. media, the influence of big tech colluding with effectively the the left side of the political spectrum. You know, More what, so, I, can give I you, agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I can give you a, a, what I think is an example of that. Um, the conversation that we're having in the country now, it's, it was yesterday and today, if you didn't live in the United States, you probably would have thought the Democrats won. Well, the way Biden is running around screaming that, you know, we held back, back democracy or we fought for democracy and no, all this other stuff. You you lost. And yeah. But the conversation in media is how Republicans didn't. Well, know, that's just because of they didn't get there. Right it's way. a spin. Yeah, yeah. but 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 uh, that's that's my point, though. Yeah. That's just spin. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's loss. they will lose the House and it's a possibility that they will also lose the Senate. Yeah. But media had no problem. If you— Look at Joe Biden's press conference on yesterday. Oh, you would think that strident pretty. Like nothing happened. Like, yeah. oh, well, you know, there was no red wave and then that's just right. it. As yeah. if, well, we still didn't take losses and no type of what's no, going to happen. No, you took an L. It's yeah. an L. You, yeah. you it's took an L. an L. You just didn't take the L it's, to the degree right. that it's you thought a, you were going to take. It's not a right. giant walloping, but you, you, you took some lumps, yeah. that's for sure. You got hit in the eye. And, <laughs> and let me ask you, Malik brought up this point earlier in the in, in the conversation, I mean, earlier in the day, um, about Mitch McConnell. Is Mitch McConnell still the kingmaker for the Republican Party? Well, yes. The short answer is yes. And, 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 the, uh, and the reason why is there's never— I don't know if there's been a more prolific fundraiser. He doesn't get he doesn't brag about it the same way people know. He's he's masterful at raising money. He's masterful at managing the relationship. Now he's been in, in power for a long time, so he's got you know the relationships. So um for sure he's the kingmaker. And he'll be 
reelected as the uh, the leader, no doubt. I mean, notwithstanding people like Josh Hawley saying that, and I get it why, and, I, and it's fine. He'll be reelected. He's he's um, masterful. You don't have to like his politics to say he's masterful at the job. And uh, when he quits on a candidate, like they quit on Bolduc, um, you know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. He says Bolduc's not a good enough candidate in New Hampshire. And then they leave and don't spend money and Bolduc loses. Masters. He was, Yeah. It looks like he was right. You know, uh, yeah, Masters. I mean, he may he may uh, eke it out. But so he's definitely the kingmaker and he's the force uh, to, to be reckoned with for the next, uh, I don't know, two, four, six years. I mean, he's not going anywhere. So I and, and I look, I do think um, notwithstanding Trump saying terrible things about him, um, Trump's got us resell, end up with the relationship because uh, McConnell is he's McConnell is the king of his turf. Happy to be the king of his turf. Whoever the president is, he knows how to he knows how to make anything work uh, to his advantage, depending on. So he he doesn't care about anything other than being majority leader. And I think he'll I think he'll get there this time, by the way, it looks like he will. Um, but even if he doesn't, he's still a master. So, yeah, no, he's a kingmaker. And um, and he will be looking the Democrats. Very shrewd. 20 t- tougher 2024 than the Republicans in terms of defending seats. So McConnell probably thinking I'm if I can squeak by right now and hold the majority I'm definitely going to have it in, in 2025 so yeah he's the, he's the he is a master let me ask you this Trump's role in this race especially for the contested seats um like Malik said Trump hundreds of like a hundred people just astonishing the, like the, the number of endorsements yeah I just like them all but from the standpoint of close races that's the interesting part right here and in 36 house races a cook political report rated as toss-ups Mr. Trump endorsed five Republicans each one lost on Tuesday um quote almost every one of these Trump endorsed candidates that you um saw in competitive states lost this was Chris Christie apparently Chris Christie is a little um, annoyed at Trump for some reason. But give me a take on that. I mean, it's one thing for Trump to put somebody, and look, and to be to his credit, Herschel Walker ended up being competitive. So regardless of whatever anyone thinks, he did end up being competitive. But all things been equal. Is Trump a negative in this? I mean, you have a lot of Republicans. Now, you can cast them as Mitt Romney-type Republicans. Okay, fair enough. I don't know if all of these guys are Mitt Romney-type Republicans. Many of these guys actually backed Trump when Trump was in office. I mean, are they wrong that Trump is somewhat of a negative in regards to close races? Or you think this was just a unique situation? Um, they're definitely wrong. And they're wrong because they want Trump to move on. And, and it's part of the thing. I, I, don't see any, I don't see any evidence that, um, that Trump is a negative. I, look, when you're running for office, this is one of the things that um, I think people maybe don't realize and one of the benefits of having run for office, I ran for Congress in 2010 and I was the attorney general nominee in Missouri in 2012. You learn how campaigns work. And the thing that you need most in campaigns is not 51% of the people to agree with you. You need sort of sets of people to agree with you and to be motivated. So you need, you know, gun owners to be excited. Well, that's not 51%. It's like 8%, right? And what Trump does is get, and, and then you want energy. You want energy and intensity of, of the response. Trump gets 40% of Republicans so excited that they act differently than they've ever acted before, which is to say they give money, they knock on doors, they go out and vote. So it's a, it, just, it just can't be anything but a net positive. Now, what I think people mean is he, he has, again, we'll go back to the narrative machine, he has the ability to turn off certain sets of voters suburban women, I guess, or, you know, for sure, sort of uh, liberal women get motivated by Trump. So if he gives you intensity on one side, Republicans love him. 
He gets intensity from the opponents too. That's that is a that is the result of the narrative machine. That's not a result of his policies. It's not even a result of his personality. I mean, it's just it's on and on and on with you know the best example is the fine people hoax is what they call it in Charlottesville, as if Trump praised Nazis and neo Nazis. It's a lie. It's a complete lie. If you listen to the tape, look at the transcript said that. And it's presented in such a way that people think the guy is a neo-Nazi. He's got Jewish kids and grandkids. I mean, so anyway, but my point is, I, I don't see any evidence he's a net, anything but a net positive. But I do think that the narrative machine can make it so that you end up talking about issues that are not as advantageous uh, to a candidate in a race. But that's the candidate's job to get yourself to get back off of what you don't want to talk. Last, last thing, Ed, I think, uh, I think it's, it'll be the last thing, um, is that next Tuesday, Trump is going to make the big announcement. Uh-oh. Is he in or is he out? And what of Ron DeSantis? And by the way, should he wait? That's the other question. No, that, that, well, that's what Politico is. If you want to know what the left, the smart left uh, thinks, you look at Politico all the time. I do. And they're, they're, they're smart. They're good writers. Now that they're saying Trump should consider waiting. Look, next Tuesday, he will announce he is running. He's not going to wait. He doesn't care if DeSantis is. He can't wait. <laughs> what, do I, what do I think? I think DeSantis is. I think DeSantis has the, the, the great two problems in, in history. One is you don't get hot in American politics, but once generally. Oh, that's what Malik said, too. He waited and didn't run, and it, he's, a, he's, a, he's a doofus now. So if you're, if you're DeSantis, you got the biggest victory ever, got all this energy, so you're hot. But the second is there's never been someone who goes against Trump that is not, <laughs> how to say, first of all, they don't win, but also they're not heavily damaged. And I don't think DeSantis is, um, I don't think he thinks that he uh, could, uh, well, I, I should say, it. he knows it's going to cost him in terms of, of, of running against Trump. So I don't know what DeSantis does. I think he's probably got stars in his eyes now and pictures himself in the Oval Office, so he probably will run, uh, in which case, I mean, talk about entertaining. It'll be wild. But um, I agree with you on that. I don't think DeSantis wants to run up for Trump. Well, I think Trump he wants to run. pull him into the mud, yeah. and I don't think DeSantis wants that. Yeah, yeah. Because Trump will—Trump, as Trump's strategy is to make you— Unlikable. I mean, look, he took what twenty other Republicans yeah. to the woodshed. That, that's his strategy. Yeah. He will take right to the you woodshed. down. And I don't. It, to, I don't know if DeSantis is willing to risk because DeSantis would have to get down in the dirt yeah. with him, especially in a one hundred and one. And right. then you could damage it forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ed, Ed, go ahead. I hear you in the background. Well, no. I mean, Trump said the other day. He said, uh, "I know DeSantis better than anyone. Maybe more. Maybe better." Yeah. Which means, you know, like he's dug into all the stuff and he knows. And I, I again, I, I remember Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly, I was asking her in, in 15, before Trump got in, you know, there was guys like Jeb Bush and Scott Walker. And I said, how none of these people feel presidential. And she said, well, you know, they, they'll, someone will grow into the role and suddenly it'll look like it. But she said also, you don't know who, presidential wise, you don't know who, um, is going to withstand the pressure. You just you could be a great governor. Walker was a great governor. Jeb was a great governor, but they were they withered uh, in in, the, in presidential. It's just a different it's a different level of uh, intensity. Trump is different. I mean, it's just it's uh, so Trump is running next week, and I don't think anybody serious will be uh, against him. He'll get the nominee a, a nomination, and it'll come down to five states. You know, six counties in five states. 
2024, and we'll see what we end up with. I think the the victory by DeSantis was so much bigger this time than the first time because he eked out the governorship. Oh, this time around, he dominated. This time, he just walloped. Yeah. Walloped. So he is safely, I would say, delivering Florida to the Republicans, whoever is on the ticket. And I'm sure it's going to be Trump. Let me ask you this. Is, um, and this might be the last question, is um, Elon Musk a threat to national security? I'm just curious. No, I mean, this is a crazy, this is a, that, 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 well, that whole thing that that was said out loud by the Biden administration or implied or Biden didn't answer, didn't reject the question. No, he didn't reject it. It's a, that's a crazy, crazy moment that he didn't do that. This president, this, this, uh, I don't know how history can be written about Biden. He's allowed so many things to, to happen. He, he actually is. I mean, this is just crazy, but this is the way that he's actually kind of a, a Hitler character, a Nazi. This regime has done things with its power. Biden is not a Hitler character. Yeah. Oh, my, but I know I did this to you before. You went crazy. I know, but it's true. <laughs> he's, he is he is he is using the power. He doesn't have Goebbels on the staff. He's got Meta and and uh, he's got uh, uh, the New York Times brainwashing people. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. There's nothing. And, you know, you and I both know. That the, the, the intelligence community in this country is knee-deep in Twitter. Yes, agreed. And social media in general. And media in general. Exactly. So there's no way it's a threat. You know what's a threat to national security is TikTok. And because the Chinese use it, they admit that they use TikTok to damage the American people, and they don't let TikTok damage their people. And and the idea that we're sitting here saying, oh, wow, this TikTok, TikTok is not a fact. It's a massive Massive. That's a massive. TikTok is damaging the American people. How's TikTok damaging the American people? Explain this to me. Have you been on TikTok? Uh, no, I haven't been on TikTok. <laughs> well, okay, look, I don't either, but it's I know it's a cesspool. Yeah. And it is owned by Chinese big tech company ByteDance. ByteDance. But yeah. however, the Biden administration has masterfully taken uh, Gen Zers on staff to literally control everything that is in everybody's feed by hiring the influencers, paying them to to spread the Biden message. And by the way, Twitter, I, look, I would argue that Twitter had more of an influence on the last election than TikTok would ever have on any of that stuff. I mean, for God's sake, the Hunter Biden stuff and their ability to basically control what goes in and what goes out, even the push to um, Facebook saying, hey, that's by the Russians. I mean, to me, that stuff has far more influence than a 20-second spot on a TikTok video. I, I just don't see it. Uh, the young people are there. I don't, I, don't know how much, I don't know how much time we have left, but I'll just tell you. I, Twitter, is, Twitter is for the political classes and the educated classes. That's not, I'm talking about TikTok being used by young people, and it's not, it's, guys, it's not the 20-second thing. It's, it's neuroscience. They admit they're using neuroscience. They're, they're, they admit that they're training people. They admit it to training people, young people, to change their brains. To make sure that you're getting a dopamine hit this way and that way over things. It's not like I'm... But so it's Facebook. Facebook was running tests, was running studies on seeing whether they can affect people's mood um, based on what they're showing in their feed. I mean, that's just a social media thing, right? That's not necessarily specific to it's TikTok. Man- manipulation. Yeah, it's manipulation. No, no, no. It, it's The difference is the Chinese communists own TikTok and they admit that they're doing one thing at home. TikTok is not in China. Right. You can't yeah. access it in mainland. Well, it, the, what TikTok, what, the version of TikTok that they use there in China, they have a version of it that they use. They don't let kids use it for more than an hour. They don't let kids feed, get bad stuff. I mean, it's a, the, the, the point is, I agree with you, Meta, we ought to regulate the heck out of Meta, too. 
I mean, I don't think kids, by the way, I don't think kids should be on social media at all. But what we're, what you're, what no one is on this so far, I'm not hearing you acknowledge, is they're not using persuasive images. They're using neuroscience to change brains. Yeah, that's true. Changing kids' brains. It's mind mapping. That's literally what it is, mind mapping. And so if you, th- my point is, I don't think Twitter is a national security threat because it's mostly journalists and political people and others. I think that TikTok, and I, again, I, I, don't, I don't care if there's nefarious people doing dumb things to people. I do care if it's the communist Chinese regime that's in charge of something. I think that's just dumb of us not to acknowledge. But I'm, look, I'm the guy that sees uh, Chinese, uh, you know, spies around the, around the corner. I mean, I, I think we're being, I think I've never, I don't, I don't think we have any understanding of how much the Chinese regime has infiltrated America in, in terms of all kinds of that. And to, to your point, um, Congressman Don Beyer, who mm-hmm. is my representative in Northern Virginia, um, I don't know how this story just flew under the radar and some local news has reported it. There's confirmation from the sergeant at arms and stuff. But Congressman Byers, one of his staffers, was apparently spying for the Chinese embassy. And it turns out it's this little old lady. Yeah. She was his scheduler. And she followed, I mean, she worked for Charlie Rangel. She worked for, oh, so, wow. yeah. So this staffer lady, people. she's worked for some big name Democrats, not just Don Byer. She, it turns out she was getting paid by the Chinese embassy and meeting up with the embassy, a little old lady. So not, not sure if she knew what she was doing. I don't, I don't know this woman. We don't know much about her. Did she get prosecuted? But uh, it's currently under investigation because it okay. just happened yeah. at the last week of October. They just found out. So, Ed, to your point, that's, you know, you're not, it's not far-fetched. No, I will. I think it's, um, I, I look, I think, that, and again, you talk about misinformation or misdirection. We spent uh, how long talking about Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? That the threat in our, in our nation is uh, pretty clearly the Chinese regime. It's not, it's, it seems to me to be pretty obvious and you look closely, but uh, again, we'll see. And I, you know, again, what, what the, the, what will happen in 2024, uh, you know, when Trump, Trump was in office, he took on TikTok, for example. He took on the Chinese regime. Say Biden hasn't actually given up a lot of that. He's left, left a bunch of stuff in place, but he certainly is not. Uh, I don't know. You don't feel like he's standing up to him. I think, again, um, every every election you'll see hear people run and say, we're going to take on the China and then they never do. I mean, that's one of the sort of games that happens. So uh, we'll see um, again if that's an issue. But I can't imagine that um, sometime in the next say decade or so, that's not going to become clearer, the real threat of the Chinese. I think it will, and we'll regret not having had more clarity around these earlier times. I'll leave it at that. Ed Martin, he is president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. He's a lawyer who holds advanced degrees in medical ethics and philosophy and has served as chairman of the Missouri Republican Party and is a member of the Republican National Committee. He was chief of staff of Missouri Governor Matt Blunt, where he helped Missouri pass pro-life and school choice legislation. Having run for office, Ed is well-versed in political strategy and tactics, how candidates win and lose, and how legislation is passed, and for that matter, defeated. You can follow more of him on ProAmericaReport.com. Let's do this. Thank you, Ed. Let's take calls. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. The number is 202-521-1320. We might have time for one. Yeah, we have like one call. Um, all things be equal. Maybe two, if we squeeze them in. Um, but if they speed through it, yeah, they got to run through it real quickly. Yeah, like probably no time for a break, but since we're so close to the end, yeah, yeah, but, we're just close to the end. To, to Ed's point, like he's done all, like he ran for office. Yeah. What better way to learn how the sausage is made than go work at the factory? In the run for mm-hmm. the, yeah, definitely. 
It's like you, you're processing the fact um, that the sausage in and of itself. And um, can I throw something out there very quick? Now, this is part. some nerd stuff. Um, you know, I've worked on political campaigns, so I know polling and typically what we do and try to do when you try to disprove a poll. Yeah. But the idea, the abortion being one of the top issues. So yeah. I wanted to see what those numbers were. Edison Research is the um, polling firm that CNN commissioned. Everybody is referring to right. This poll. And, and so when like I that. went and did the, you know, did the cross tabs and I found out what that 61% number, that two-third number, yeah. the question, well, actually it wasn't a question. What it says is feelings about Roe v. Wade being overturned. Enthusiastic, satisfied, 37%, dissatisfied, angry, 61%. Right. They combined the, the two. Right. So the reason that I'm actually bringing this up is that we don't know what the question was. Wait, what do you mean? So the, in the same poll, they had specific questions, for instance. Oh, I see. They didn't give a question on that one. Confident just... your state election laws are fair and accurate. Question. Not confident, 19%. Confident, 79%. Feelings about Roe v. Wade being overturned. Are you enthusiastic or dissatisfied? We don't know because the question, the, what we're assuming is the question was, did it influence? How how did it factor into your vote? Oh, I see. Right, because they see. didn't directly ask that. I see. They didn't. Oh, I see. They didn't ask. They didn't say. How did much? this affect your vote? Right. They didn't ask that. No. They just said, "How do you feel right, about like, this?" I could be happy that Roe got overturned, but did it impact my vote? I don't and know. And that what well, we don't know, but, and because Edison is a paid poll, you have to pay to see what the actual questions are. But I thought they did do the thing of saying of the people that said this affected their vote, X number of people voted for so and so. Everybody says that, but yeah. when you go and look at on. CNN's website, everybody is pulling from CNN's website right. or Edison itself. It doesn't say that. Like, no one says there is no if, there is no anything. And, and unless you're looking at the actual questions right. to see what the question was, because the question know. would have to be how much did overturning Roe impact your vote. your vote? But then what they say is, is that they're dissatisfied and angry. So they would the, question, the response to that specific question would be, it impacted me. Yeah. To vote for so-and-so. But it doesn't say that. But can't they use that question of saying, okay, even though they didn't necessarily ask the question directly, can they say, of the people that said they were angry or upset about Roe, they voted X number yeah. for Democrats? And that's Could you the, can do that comparison? Sure. But that's the number. But we need that question. It yeah. needs to be like, specific. So, yeah. the data, so the data is what we're missing to see what you actually asked because, sure, people are upset. Yeah. But then does that mean it factored into their vote? vote? Yeah. And that's the part that we don't actually know. Interesting. I guess uh, maybe we, we have a disconnect on this one. Because if I'm, um, let's say they don't ask that question. Let's say they just say, um, are you angry and upset about Roe v. Wade? The person says, yes, 60%. They're angry and upset about Roe v. Wade. They don't ask the question about how did this affect your vote? Mm -hmm. But can't they still compare it to the people who voted Democrat? Meaning, can they say, um, of the people who said they were angry and upset, a third voted Democrat? Or 50% voted Democrat. Because sure. you can do it that way. Sure. I mean, that's a, it's, it's not asking it directly, but it is showing, it's almost like a tangential question towards it or something like that. Right, but you have to make an inference. Yeah, right, as right. As opposed to yeah. what the direct question A direct question. question. Like they Did this influence your vote, yes or no? You know, people who are upset about inflation, like all of, so they polled all of these things, inflation, yeah. all of these things. 
Yeah. No, that, that, I <laughs> mean, I was, I was very fascinated with the exit polls to see how those things would turn out, especially for minorities. So, yeah, but, polling quality matters. Yes, it does. But look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. I want to thank our engineer, singular. I want to thank our producers, plural. I want to thank all of you, listeners, callers, people who watch it on Rumblers. On Rumblers or listen on radio. Fault Lines, back in the morning. Friday. That's right. Woo. We're over the hump. Yep, yep, yep. Friday. <laughs> Fault Lines.